this episode, Justice League America number 46 and Justice League Europe number 22, cover dated January 1991. And welcome to the 46th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but guess what, folks? I have brought along some friends. In fact, each episode, I invite two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple of issues of the JLI. Now, we're going to chat with my second co-host in just a bit, but for now, my first co-host today is a longtime friend of the Fire and Water Podcast Network and previously collaborated with me on an episode all about Star Wars Shadows of the Empire, if you folks can remember that. Uh, he's a massive Star Wars fan, but he's also a dedicated fan of role-playing games. And by dedicated, I mean in an unhealthy way. Uh, this guy downloaded, re-downloaded, and obsessively listened to our RPG podcast while he was waiting for us to record the next episode. Sadly, the joke was on him because we usually took about two years between episodes. So, folks, please help me welcome this sad, sad man who apparently has too much time in his hands, Mr. Andy Capellish. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Andy. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Ready to dive in. Uh, you know, in, in just in general, uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of g- glory that I'm seeking in this episode <laughs> because the- <laughs> listen, I could do this all day. I know um, you can. <laughs> <laughs> So I have a question to ask you up front. So, you know, we, again, last time we recorded together was that Shadows of the Empire episode, which was a lot of fun. We really went deep in all the different aspects of it. And the assignment there that I gave you six months in advance was to read the Shadows of the Empire book. So we get to the day of recording and we're about to click press record. And Andy goes, oh, by the way, I didn't finish the book. So I have to ask you here today, this 22 page comic, did you even finish it, Andy? Listen, it came down to the wire, but I got it accomplished. I, I just, I dug deep and I pulled through because that's what heroes do. Oh, wow. Well, thank goodness there's pictures, right? Makes it easier on you. Yeah, lots of pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, this is a big deal. So as Andy has alluded to, there's a lot of glory in this issue. This is the beginning of the five-part general glory storyline. And this storyline is just very, very divisive among fans over the years. There's some people that feel this was like a a breaking point for the Just League International. They felt like the humor went too far. So we're going to be examining this, uh, you know, issue by issue over uh, for the next five issues. And we're going to see if the story aged well. Uh, better than we remembered it, or if it uh, deserves some of that reputation it has. So I'm interested to find out. I have not read ahead. I have only read this issue. I'll be reading one issue at a time as we cover it. So I'm interested to find out where we land. Now, before we get too far, though, we do need to take a second to thank our sponsors. And folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select some collected edition to briefly discuss from the Intox Trades Library. And usually it's tied into that issue in some way, shape, or fashion. I picked, since obviously we're covering General Glory, who is obviously a pastiche of Captain America, I picked one of my favorite Captain America stories. It's Captain America Epic Collection Trade Paperback, Man Without a Country. So to shorten that for you, it's the Mark Wade, uh, Ron Garney stuff. There you go. So that's what you need to know. So this covers several issues of Captain America and Thor and Iron Man, Avengers. You know, again, it's that era by Mark Wade and Ron Garney. It's a fantastic run. I mean, Mark Wade's Captain America run was excellent. Did you ever read any of that, Andy? Um, Actually, 
have not. I am a big Mark Wade fan, though. Oh, it's great, man. It is so good. It it really was the first time I ever read Captain America and cared about the character. It really, really resonated from, with me. So, folks, this epic collection is 456 pages, full color, soft cover. It normally goes for $39.99, but on in-stock trades right now, you can get it for 38% off, so it's only $24.79. That is a heck of a deal for 456 pages. That's amazing. So, all right, Andy, so you're up, buddy. In-stock trades library. Most people, when they come on the show, they take the time to do their research and come up with an in-stock trades library pick. Did you happen to be one of the cool kids, or did you pull what we call an Andy? <laughs> I absolutely did, actually, this time I was prepared. Wow. Um, you know, I'm I'm pushing 40 here, man. Like, I gotta get my act together sometime, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just, yeah, that's just how it works. Yeah, um, I chose the Prince Valiant hardcover, volume 2, 1939 to 1940, a uh, sword and sorcery at its grandest, uh, as the classic adventure strip continues in a second volume. Yeah, I actually own this. Uh, a few years ago, I uh, bought a a bunch of the slip covers for my birthday. It came in a, a pack of three. And what an incredible, just Hal Foster art. You, you can't beat it. Um, but I figure since, you know, we're, we're playing around with some, you know, different different hairstyles, uh, some some maybe less fashionable hairstyles, I figured v- Prince Valiant would be a, uh, <laughs> a good way to go for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Sim- nice symmetry. Nice symmetry. Absolutely. So uh, it's published by Fanagraphics, obviously written in uh, uh, the artist by Hal Foster. It's a hardcover and it was $29.99, but you can get it for $20.99. You save 30%. That's 30% off for in-stock trades. That's fantastic. So uh, you heard it there, folks. Prince Valiant, uh, hardcover volume to 1939 to 1940. So it's right in the right era too for General Glory. So it fits perfectly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm very smart. I'm very <laughs> able to come up with these things just right off the top of my head. It's just an incredible gift that I have. You are SMRT, sir. You definitely are. (laughs) So, folks, for this and all your other trade paperbacks, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, I also need to take a second to thank you folks at home uh, for your support through the Patreon, because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other, you know, services and fees. And a while back, we realized we needed some help with the expenses, and we launched the Patreon, and you folks really stepped up to help to keep the network going. So if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast. While you're there, please consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network, and at certain tiers, you'll get mentioned on your show of choice, just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI Podcast. So our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Coos, John Ross Haynes, Kevin Wetter, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Michael Crouch, Mike Zumkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Preeb, Rudy Gostilio, Sean Ross, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, and Tim Price. Woof! Thank you, all of you, and uh, thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please visit that again at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, folks, we are going to get in here and start talking about General Glory now, and we want you to be part of the conversation. I want to know how you felt about General Glory back then. I want you to reread these comics and tell me how you feel about them now, and uh, share your thoughts. And you can do that, obviously, through social media. You can tag us at JLI Podcast on Twitter, or Just League International, blah, ha, ha, podcast on Facebook. Uh, use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast because it's it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show so we can all share our experiences and our love for the characters. Or, you know, in this case, maybe there's not some love. Well, we'll have to find out. Now, Andy, I got to ask you here. First time on the show, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How'd you find the book? How'd you fall in love with it? Or is this the first time you've ever read it? Oh, no. <laughs> I've been a huge uh, JLI fan uh, basically from a very young age because uh, I was born in the mid-1980s and this was the the Justice League for the first 10 years of my life. 
my dad and my uncle collected comic books back in the 1980s and growing up just with comic books around this was the Justice League when I was growing up I, this is I've only ever known this one really but I remember I have a very specific memory of the first time that I kind of like really grafted onto one of these characters and I think we talked about it in um uh, the Secret Origins when we were doing the Booster Gold episode together mm-hmm. and uh, the I think I already told this story but for new listeners or someone who hasn't listened to that podcast basically there was a Booster Gold comic and I'm pretty sure it was either Justice League International it might have even been a conglomerate uh, comic mm. but I received it as a gift for getting my shot so I could go to preschool so uh, <laughs> I remember uh, uh, being very you know sort of like interested in those characters from a very early age um, and then kind of as an adult I kind of drifted away from them as a sort of group and obviously after the 90s like sort of the reformation of the traditional Justice League you know and everything else I kind of came around back around into about 2005 uh, I got I think the second trade of uh, I can't believe it's not the Justice League at a comic book shop and I was like oh this is fantastic so I went back and I just started digging through 50 cent bins and I got an entire run I think the only thing that I have in trade paperback is the first uh, six six or so issues yeah that's uh, kind of how I I sort of veered away for a while and then I was like I love these characters I should go back to reading them and obviously the great Kevin McGuire art and you know the the writing is just hilarious and as an adult I'm able to get all the sort of inside jokes and smarmy 80s references I guess (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of a preschooler trying to navigate his way through all the the corporate sponsorship and and greed of of (laughs) Booster Gold I think that's hysterical I love that I like the faces. They're very friendly. Right, exactly. And, and your yeah. story about drifting away is not that uncommon. I mean, because you know, Justice League International didn't end when Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus left. It kept going. And, you know, for better or for worse, there's some years there that are probably not the best, you know, in hindsight. And I think a lot of us drifted away. And also, you know, there was that, there was a, in the 90s, especially when Grant Morrison stuff was going, everybody, like, the fandom turned on these books. They were just, like, vicious and cruel. And they just, because this, lo- this league was a joke. And I just fandom got ugly for a number of years and it wasn't until around the time of I can't believe it's not the Justice League or formerly known as Justice League where people began to reevaluate it and go oh yeah I did really like that back in the day so yeah, yeah your story is not that uncommon about drifting away and coming back so welcome back to the embassy sir sort of a reverse Superboy Prime you know? <laughs> Well, all right, let's get into this, folks. So uh, if you want to see some of the images from this comic, you can go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. We'll have a gallery post with some of the images, but let's face it, folks, you can you can buy this digitally, you can read it on DC Infinite, you can get it in the Omnibus. It is very, very available. Go find it. Don't depend on me to do everything for you people. You're adults, for goodness sake. Uh, so this is Justice League America, number 46, from DC Comics, cover dated January 1991. It was on the shelves November 20th, 1990. The cover price was $1 for shiny quarters. And the cover is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story. You want to describe the cover for us, Andy? Sure. Guy Gardner reads an issue of the General Glory comic as something mystical in the air begins to raise his bowl cut in a wind tunnel motion. The striking cover has a nice contrast and an eye-grabbing sun-yellow background with a nice guy face and prominently displayed comic featuring General Glory. I love this. It just looks like you know there's so much action and adventure on the comic that it's blowing Guy's hair back. I absolutely love that. It's really, really, really done well. It's just very 
good. And it's like, I think I actually, a while ago, I had a, um, in my sort of office area, I did like a wall of comics, like great covers. And I think this was one of the ones that I chose up there. It was like oh, okay. Right next to Star Wars Tales number seven and uh, Star Comics Ewoks number one. Nice. So. Nice. <laughs> and and if, if, if I didn't know better, I wouldn't know this was an Adam Hughes and Carl Story cover because, you know, usually when you think Adam Hughes covers, you're thinking, okay, there's going to be a little cheesecake or a little bit of beefcake or there's going to be just certain telltale signs, but this is such a different cover, you don't see it. And uh, it, it's still expertly done and the and the the angle is tough to pull off. The hands in the foreground are tough to pull off and they manage it just seamlessly. It looks great. Absolutely. Now, there's some things I got to talk about here is, uh, first off, on the back cover, there's an ad that says, get your very own atomic submarine over six feet long. Or, you know, hey kids, so real, only 25 cents. Because the whole point is this, this General Glory is supposed to, comic is supposed to be one from like 1942. And so uh, one of our listeners, uh, Zach Attack 1880, actually found the old ad for the Polaris nuclear sub that used to run in comic books, and he shared that with us over on Twitter. Uh, in this case, it says, over six feet long, big enough for two kids, $6.98. I gotta wonder what that thing looked like in real life. I mean, that's insane. That is absolutely insane. I've actually heard a, I've heard a story about this. Really? Um, I can't remember on which podcast it was, but I heard someone that actually had a friend who got to order this thing, and apparently was made of very flimsy cardboard. It was a sort <laughs> of, uh, yeah. And so it was like, you know, it was like one of those, you know, two panels of cardboard with, uh, you know, and I think you might have even had to supply your own box in between them, but it was basically just, you know, two things that you could, so, you know, it simulated a submarine, but I guess uh, if I remember the story correctly, and I can't remember for life who it was, but they had like left it outside in a rainstorm, completely destroyed it like the second day that they had it. Oh, so, <laughs> it got soggy. It's not, not great for a nuclear, nuclear sub. <laughs> And, you know, this is the first time I've ever even considered the fact that you couldn't put it, like, in the bathtub. Like, okay, that I guess it wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> yeah. submersible. But it's advertising a sub, but, yeah, I guess that makes more sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, first off, I should say that, by the way, the cover here is supposed to be sort of representative of Captain America number one. Because on the cover, it has General Glory, and, he's saying, and it says, watch out, Adolf! Whereas on the original Captain America number one, it actually has him punching Adolf Hitler right in the face. So, that was kind of a nice thing. But, overall, the, the, the idea of Guy Gardner sitting there holding this comic and it blowing his hair back looks so familiar to me. Like, I, I, I'm i convinced this is an homage of something. Like, this whole holding the pieces of paper or or something in front of you and your hair blowing back was, was some sort of homage. So I actually, I took to the Twitters and I asked for help from listeners. And I said, hey folks, look, I really, really feel like this is an homage. Can Does anyone, but I, but I can't figure out what it is. Does anyone remember? I feel like maybe it's a video game ad or, or another comic ad or something that appeared in comic books. So I got a lot, I'm going to read out everyone who chimed in because tons of responses. By the way, I'm just going to read out the the folks at the time of this recording. But more responses are still coming in. So thank you, everybody. You guys are amazing participating in this. Now, I still to this day, I will say I have not found the ad that I feel like represents what this is from. So I, I'm going to I'm going to read out all these, but unfortunately, none of them. I think I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we, we found what it's representing. But still, thank you to everybody who sent theirs in. So Sean Ross sent in the Memorex ad. That's the one where the guys. Uh, it's it's the side shot, but he's sitting in the chair in the in the stereo. So loud, it's actually blowing his hair back and blowing stuff around the room. Mike Dynas sent in a similar one, where it's Maxell tape, not Memorex, but Maxell tape, and clearly the music has blown this guy's hair back. I mean, that one actually, there's a little bit of similarity there, where his hair's being blown back. Uh, Big D Jason sent in the ad, the comic book ad for the Star Wars arcade game. So, not hair being blown back, but the guy does have sort of a similar expression. 
Patrick from uh, Patrick's Tactics and Tutorials thought that perhaps it was a bit of a nod to the Three Stooges or Hal Roach's Rascals because uh, anytime somebody was surprised, their hair would stand straight up. DC in the 80s uh, suggested it might be from Cracked Magazine or Mad Magazine. And this is actually, I'm starting to feel like this could be where it is. I really feel like there's something there in Mad Magazine or Cracked, but nobody can seem to find what it is. Carlos uh, Nicolini sent in a tobacco ad. Then a whole bunch of other people. I'm just going to name check really quickly who contributed to the conversation. Thank you guys so much. Kyle Benning, uh, Asamu Yukinori, Canadian Geek, Jamie Gamble, Michael O'Brien, Emo Scott Pilgrim, Dr. Adam P. Carson, Greg Arujo, Bucks Roundtree, Tim Price, Martin Gray, RJ Ryan, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Randy Monk, James Biobolics Joyce, Andre F. Pelletier, Rodolfo from Lucha Comics, Chris Whiteman, and It's James and the Awful Truth. I mean, all these folks were chiming in, all agreeing that this cover reminds them of something, but none of us have been able to identify it yet. So folks, take a good look at this cover. If you think you know the ad that this, you know, or whatever it is that we were all thinking of, please share it in the comments. We would love to see it, but uh, we didn't get there. Now, I did get one more comment that's worth mentioning. We did hear from Adam Hughes, the man who drew the cover himself. Adam says, I think it's just another Justice League cover. I don't recall it being based on anything, but I can't remember what I had for breakfast either. <laughs> so, you know, the, the man himself said it's not an homage. Uh, so so I, I'm not going to argue with Adam Hughes, who says he thinks it's not an homage. However, I, I just, it definitely reminds me of something. So anyway, chime in the comments, folks, on your thoughts on that. So let's let's get into this here. So uh, plot and breakdowns are by Keith Giffen. Plot assist and script. That's that's a new credit. Plot assist. Plot assist and script by J.M.D. Mateus. Guest penciler is Linda Medley. Inker is Jose Marzan. Letters Bob LePan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. Editor is Andy Helfer. And there's a special credit here. It says General Glory, created by J.M.D. Mateus and Keith Giffen. The issue itself is Glory Bound, part one of five. And the issue is called Old Glory. Andy, you want to start us off? The story opens at a rest home of some kind, possibly a personal residence, receiving an unexpected visitor. The visitor, who speaks with a thick German accent, is looking for an old friend, one Joseph Jones, who the live-in nurse confirms resides there. As she goes to retrieve him, the German man goes to his trunk and rummages around for something. As the old man gets to the door, he is greeted with a massive cylindrical bazooka as the old man reveals himself to the readers as an old foe, attempting to kill him. Joe ducks just in time, and the two old men exchange words as the man with the German accent climbs into his car and drives away. Taking this as his sign to leave, Joe packs his bag with the nurse asking him about the incident. He just tells her that he's got to go and that he had gotten too comfortable here. We learn that her name is Naomi, and he tells her that it's too hard to leave with a long goodbye, so, and he calls her a peach. As he leaves, reiterating the statement, he heads off down the sidewalk, muttering about remembering the words. The scene changes to a splash page of Martian Manhunter escorting Maxwell Lord to a fancy car as they discuss his trip that Max is taking to the Moscow Embassy. A few sly comments are made about Max's new contact, Sonia Lubitov. Max makes some travel jokes, philosophy banter, and some innuendo. Emphasis on the innuendo. This discussion is so stressful, it causes John to secret away a pack of or, thumb obscuring the second O, cookies. Uh, <laughs> MagnaCon gets a shout out too as he brushes off Elrond. Elrond, unfazed by the brush off, checks on Guy, who is watching a cynical TV program and lusting after the anchor woman. A segment comes on about the sale of a rare General Glory comic book being sold at a, a pastiche of a highly respected auction house at a Comic-Con for an upwards of $10,000. Guy loses his mind with excitement as General Glory is his all-time favorite hero. The report continues as we cut to the old man, Joe, as he watches it through the window of a department store looking sad. He repeats the words, the words. The German man from before is also watching the report on his TV as he fashions another impossibly large but smaller gun. He says that he won't fail 
fail this time. The scene changes once again, with Guy walking through the crowd of geeks and geezers at the comic book convention slash auction slash World War II veterans meeting all taking place at the same hotel and runs into a massive line into the interior of the con. When he gets to the front, he's asked for $12 for admission, nearly $25 in today's money, (laughs) and throws a tantrum. A curly-haired mutant fan tries to start something with Guy, saying he doesn't care if he's Superman. He needs to calm down when Guy tries his don't-you-know-who-I-am shtick. Guy uses his power ring to toss him to the back of the line with what looks like a roach clip for smoking marijuana cigarettes for no reason. The Green Lantern gets, of course, made, and the geeks geek out as Black Hand gets mentioned and Guy heads into the con at large. All right, I'll tell you from here. So after barging his way into the comic convention, Guy wanders around the dealer's room. And in a series of thought balloons, Guy goes through some very, what I would say is meta thoughts. So he starts off by mocking the comic convention attendees as losers and eventually settles on the comic collectors as some of the best folks in the world. Uh, I think DiMatteis is clearly playing to the audience here. So uh, a little child comes up and asks Guy Gardner to sign his comic book, which just happens to be Justice League International number 18. Guy Gardner happily agrees until he sees the cover, which is where Lobo has the upper hand on Guy Gardner. Guy tears up the comic book instead, disappointing the child. The auction begins for the coveted General Glory number one, one of the rarest comic books in existence. Guy bids just $10 and threatens the crowd, suggesting that they should let him win and not bid over him or else. One person, one person stands up to Guy's bullying and they end up in a bidding war. It's the old man, Joe Jones, from earlier in the issue. For whatever reason, he desperately wants that comic book. Ultimately, Guy wins the auction with a bid of $5,000. Then, that old German guy we talked about from earlier, Schmidt, he turns up too, trying to kill Joe Jones, but Guy Gardner chases him off. Back at the Just League International headquarters, Guy is reading his beloved comic book when the old man from the auction arrives. Joe Jones tells Guy that he just wants a quick look at the comic book, but instead, Guy kicks him out. The old man knocks on the door again, this time promising to reimburse Guy Gardner the $5,000 he spent simply to get a quick look at the comic. Guy lets Joe Jones into the embassy, allows him to look over the comic, while also demanding the $5,000. Joe Jones is reviewing the page where a young soldier recites an oath. Jones wonders to himself, how could he have forgotten? Then Joe Jones utters the oath, Lady of Liberty, hear my plea, for the land of the brave and the home of the free. And Joe Jones is suddenly and miraculously transformed into the classic hero of the Golden Age, General Glory himself. Next issue, General Glory fights again. So there we go, folks. That is issue one of the General Glory saga. Andy, what'd you think, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. Not as good as I remember this being, but maybe I'm recalling the story at large. Like, mm-hmm. maybe I'm not, like, this specific issue. Um, it has such an iconic cover, but, uh, you know, the art is very serviceable, and the story is... I don't have an issue with this at all. I think it's fun. And I remember this run being primarily fun. So there's n- nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> so uh, if you if you see this in a 50 cent bin, absolutely pick it up. Well, let, let's talk about the art since you mentioned it, because that's actually kind of a big deal here. So this is the first issue of Just Like America by Linda Medley. And she's got a very unique style. And the fact is, she, uh, there's a lot of fans that did not take to her style at the time. Uh, from what I understand, it got pretty ugly. Uh, people writing in some nasty letters. 
Wars. But for me, uh, this issue I thought was great. I really dug it. And, it, you know, I don't know whether it's uh, the cartoony style, because she's definitely got a cartoonish style. kind of looks like, do you remember Celebrity Deathmatch? Yeah. Kind of like the proportion-wise. The heads are larger, the hands are larger, the feet are larger. It's, yeah, it's very cartoony, yeah. And, and that could be the case. It's, there's also, to me, a little bit of an echo of Ty Templeton style. Now, and that's because Ty Templeton also drew things cartoonish. So I see some similarities there. I mean, Ty, Ty is, I'm not saying you would mistake the two for the other. Ty had a very uh, different style in that regard. I mean, very simple line work, but he also, he had a very cartoony flair. And uh, now prior to this, Linda had done a Justice League Europe issue and a Justice League Europe annual. And I got to say, reading this issue, I think that her style's really, really coming along. Uh, or maybe it's just Jose Marzan's inking really connects with her well. I'm not sure. And I will notice, I did notice a change about halfway through the issue. Like the first half of the issue, the inking lines are all really thick. And I think that adds a lot. I mean, it really adds to the cartoony feel. Once you get to about the halfway point around the comic convention, I don't know whether they were in a hurry or maybe a second inker help. The lines get a lot thinner and you lose a little bit of the funness from that uh, about halfway through. But still, I, I know, again, I know there's a lot of people that didn't like her style, but having read all the different styles I've seen in Justice League you know, during this podcast, I think this looks great. I think it's, uh, it, I would say it goes beyond serviceable. I think there's some really fun aspects to it. Yeah, it's not really my favorite, but I mean, I, I don't think it's bad. I just think that it's, you know, then again, I mean, you know, I even though I like the Max, I didn't really like it when like the first trade paperback of uh, Sandman with Sam Keith art really mm-hmm. wasn't my thing, especially when he, when uh, when uh, Morpheus shows up at the JLI embassy. Right, uh, right. And, like in that, it's kind of what I was thinking of when I was reading. I was like, oh, this is kind of like the more cartoony style. You know, I, I think that like I like obviously uh, Adam Hughes did a great job. And then, of course, Kevin McGuire's the all time best. So, yeah, but uh, and, and given the, the, the sheer parody nature of the story, I think the cartoony style kind of helps, you know, because I mean, this they're really leaning into the parody this time. Absolutely. So also, it's it's kind of ironic that uh, Guy comes off as this, you know, real, you know, man's man, you know, and then on his uh, in, on his days off, he dresses like uh, like a sort of like rip off a uh, Tom of Finland character. You know, he's got the the, you know, the, the tight man jeans and the sort of like <laughs> black T-shirt. There's definitely some some representation here that I, whether intentional or not, maybe it says a little something about Guy. But yeah, it's uh, it's I just think it's kind of funny that, you know, for a character that, you know, purports himself to be this sort of like, you know, ultra masculine man's man, you know, type thing and probably doesn't always have, you know, correct speech patterns. You know, he <laughs> he, he he dresses like a Tom of Finland character. Um, also, how does Guy Gardner have five grand? Uh, <laughs> we know that well, was it, it's mentioned that Wally West spends like five thousand dollars a month on on shoes. And that comes out of the that comes out of the budget for JLA, Jelly and, you know, whatever else. But uh, how does he have five? Five thousand. Like, did like you know, uh, Ice give him the money? Like, <laughs> he actually says it uh, in here. It's it's buried just in one little tiny line. He makes a reference that he uh, he dipped into league funds, Justice League funds, to pay for the comics. So that means he <laughs> that he makes ba- sense. he basically embezzled money to pay for it. And he said Max is going to kill him. <laughs> and that got me thinking because you know a few issues back, the Kahui 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 storyline. That's exactly what Beetle and Booster did. Was they dipped into Justice League funds to buy the you know and build the casino, which got their butts in all kinds of trouble. So I'm really hoping Guy uh, has to pay the price here for what he's done. I hope. I doubt that'll be the case, but I would like that. <laughs> uh, Max Lord's never killed anyone. I don't know. Oh, too soon. Um, too soon. Uh, rotten hell, Max. Anyways, right. Um, exactly. <laughs> 
or it, also, never, or um, it never happened. It's well, I mean, you know, <laughs> with the continuity, uh, nature of continuity, uh, we'll see what's canon and what's not in a few years, I guess. Right. Again. So I wanted to talk about Joe Jones and Schmidt. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, General Glory's uh, secret identity and Schmidt is obviously his German uh, Nazi foe. Those two are hysterical together. Like the first part of this comic, <laughs> the first, like, especially like the three pages, they're like a spy versus spy cartoon. I mean, they're hilarious. The, the, the size of the gun that Schmidt shows up with is so ludicrous and so over the top. I just couldn't stop laughing at it. And I, I like how the, the rest home is actually called the Golden Age rest home. I mean, that's perfect. Perfectly <laughs> named. I am just adoring these guys. And then later on, when they show Schmidt in his uh, in his little workshop building the next gun or whatever, he's got all these boxes and, and, and drawers and bins and everything. And one of the bins is labeled Kirby Bits. So uh, Kirby Bits, <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. The, well, the gun is like a like a Jack Kirby, like one of those impossible Fantastic mm-hmm. Four machines, right? Like the, the thing. So that's sort of, I guess, like another Kirby reference to, uh, you know. Totally agree. Totally agree with that. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the attractive uh, TV host. So there's a lot of... Of a, a further parody going on here, cultural parody, not just about Captain America, but like that that TV show host, that is supposed to be Entertainment Tonight, and Guy is drooling over the host's legs, which is absolutely a reference to Mary Hart, who was uh, boy, I hope I got her name right, because it's off the top of my head folks, but she was the host of Entertainment Tonight and her legs were reportedly insured for one million dollars. That's how well uh, she was liked on television. So that's clearly a, uh, you know, a cultural reference to that one. Then the uh, Northbees auction, you made, you made a joke about there, or you mentioned how it was a, a parody, yeah. <laughs> Sotheby's Auction House is where all the famous comic books used to be auctioned off back in the 90s. So again, another parody there. Uh, so they're really going out of their way. And then, then it gets really meta when they go to the comic convention. So this part cracked me up. You, I'm glad you did the, the translation on the math, the $12 to $25. Because what I did was, you know, Guy is complaining about how long the line of, of people are to get in, and he's having an absolute fit. <laughs> I actually count it. It's 40 people long. Okay, that's how long the line is. Could you imagine going to a comic book convention nowadays, and the line of people being only 40 people long, you would be thrilled to be in a line that's only 40 people long nowadays at a comic convention. I used to wait in line for Dragon Con just to pick up my badge. I, you'd have to get there like four hours early. It'd just stand there and wait. And this is before, cell, you know, cell phones were even, well, I mean, they, they were around, but they, you, they weren't like iPhones where you could do all kinds of stuff. You just have to find ways to entertain yourself. Play Snake. Right, exactly. <laughs> So yeah, guy, uh, forty people. You should be happy. You should be happy. I think I think you would be mad if there was one person in line. That's just Guy Gardner. That's true. He would because he's a complete <laughs> douchebag. That's absolutely true. <laughs> So a lot of meta commentary going into the comic convention. You know, again, guys, thought balloons start off with about how comic collectors are losers, but by the end, he's saying, "Oh no, these are the best people ever." So I got to ask you: Is that hilarious, or is it too much pandering to the audience? What do you think? No, I think it's like a it's it's satire. So it's like you know, it's you can view it if you view it one way or the other way. Both both options work. But if you view it from the top down, it, it's definitely what they were going for. So I feel like you know, if you if you say, "Oh, it's too cynical," like it's like, "Oh, they're pandering," or if they're saying oh they're making commentary but in all actuality it's just the overall just the vibe of the book that's what they're going for you know they're kind of like oh look at us they're lampshading their sort of satire so that's fine it's it's I, I don't know why people would have an issue with that then again you know I, I do have uh, an IQ higher than uh, I am the smartest man in the room there we go uh, <laughs> perfect I'm in a room by myself <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, I, you know, I really like the way you described that, though. That uh, that that makes me feel better about liking that scene, and because I was worried, but I think you made a lot of valid points there. And in that page where guys thinking all that on page twelve, I really feel like Linda Medley is having some fun here. I feel like those a, a lot of those background characters must be real people that she knows and she's basing them on. Like because you can see a couple of comic creators in the back there that are doing signings. You can see just random people cosplaying, whatever. It's like there's a funny bit where there's a there's a woman cosplaying as Black Canary, and she's got this screaming kid who's trying to pull away from her who's screaming his head off and she's totally enamored with talking to the, the Green Arrow cosplayer. So I just, I feel like th- maybe she knew some of these people in real life. I'm not sure. Uh, and then Guy sh- totally shreds the real world copy of Just League International number 18, which is the one where he's weeping on the cover and Lobo's got the best of him. That cracked me up. I genuinely laughed at that one. That was funny. Uh, there's also a little bit of self-parody going on here. While he's at the comic convention, they're announcing other panels and one of the panels is Justice League the comic. Character licensing or character assassination? Which it fits very well the accusations that used to be fly at Giffen and Demetrius because they people used to write in all the time and complain about saying, "Oh, you're not handling these characters right. You're destroying the Justice League." Blah blah blah. So I, they're, they're, they've got their tongue firmly planted in their cheek when they put that in there. So I appreciate that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what's kind of going on behind the scenes here. So uh, J.M. Demetrius obviously is the scripter, the co-plotter on this thing. And you know, some people might think, "Oh, General Glory is just a stupid parody of Captain America. Oh, it's dumb. The creators didn't do." It. But the fact is, J.M. Demetrius he wrote Captain America, guys. He has a he has a deep respect for the character of Captain America. In fact, if you want to hear about that, uh, right here on our own network, you can listen to uh, a show called FW Presents, the October first, two thousand seventeen episode. Specifically, it's, uh, it's called Mountain Comics episode eight. And Jamie Demetrius was on the show with my buddy Rob, and they talked about Captain America number two sixty three. And Jamie Demetrius talked about his love for Captain America and some of the plans he was hoping to roll out while he was writing Captain America. So don't think that Demetrius is doing this to be mean. He genuinely likes the character Captain America. So that's where he's sort of leaning into this here. And uh, another piece of sort of behind the scenes with Demetrius, you know, um, remember that scene in here? Did you catch that scene where uh, Maxwell Lord is talking to uh, Martian Manhunter as he's getting ready to go? That part? Yeah. So I don't know. It took me a minute to catch it, but Demetrius is totally dropping some of his Buddhist scripture stuff in there. Max is talking about how he dated this girl and learned a bunch of philosophy from her and uh, Buddhist scripture and stuff. And the last thing he says is before he goes, he tells John to remember, quote, be here now. And I figured that was something, right? So I looked it up. Turns out that is a 1971 book uh, written all about spirituality and it helped popularize the Eastern spirituality with the baby boomer generation here in the West. So, I mean, this is Demetrius showing his uh, his own passion for different things and drop that right in there in a great scene that you know just looks like it's a comedy scene but it's deeper than yeah, than you might know I just think yeah it's it's very Maxwell Lord to take the bit from it that is the sort of bumper sticker philosophy uh, version of the philosophy without in- informing his character at all so he's able to like he's like oh I'm well read you know it's very like American Psycho where he's like you know uh, obviously has a deep well of knowledge about the thing but it doesn't have have the emotional capacity to have it actually have any impact on his life, right? That's a fantastic observation. Yeah, yeah. So he's, I think he's, you know, one of those. And, you know, the, the I think the book comes from, um, you know, it's a very satirical place, but it's also very cynical, I think, with a lot of the characters. And I think that that sort of cynicism comes through. I think it's a really, this is a really well-written sort of uh, back and forth. And also, too, I mean, I'm just a sucker for 
any of the uh, John Oreo, Hydrox, <laughs> or uh, Choco bits that come out of <laughs> the Choco cookies. Uh, so uh, anything that leads to that is great. But yeah, yeah, I definitely think that the, the there's a lot of, I think that's actually the meat of this issue. If you if you had to ask me like what the most important part for the ongoing story is, is they get one splash page and then the rest of it is just kind of, you know, where they're going with this particular tangent. But I really like the tangent that they're going on, so I don't mind at all. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And, and But again, that, that your observation on Max is really, really clever. I hadn't thought about that. that yeah, it, it's the bumper sticker version of the philosophy. You're absolutely right. Because they're showing in the scene how shallow he is. The whole point he's going to the Russian embassy is just to, ho- to hopefully hook up with this the, the new woman who's in charge. I mean, <laughs> Max is really being a lech here. And so doing the sort of, like you said, bumper sticker philosophy, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Well, he's talking about the journey too, you know, the, the sort mm-hmm. of like journey, but then he like, I think he makes a reference to the journey being like a philosophical idea, but also he's like taking a train. So I think that there's like another commentary about like him not fully understanding the, you know, sort of like lampshade hanging, but like, it's like, you know, him being like, oh, it's the journey that's important, you know, so he gets to spend more time with this, you know, lady or whatever, but then it's like, he doesn't understand that the, well, he, he might understand, but like, it's implied that he doesn't fully understand he thinks the journey there's like some interplay there i guess yeah. like physical journey versus you know an emotional journey or you know the the lessons you learn along the way but he's not learning a lesson he's there you know he's trying to be lecherous so <laughs> that's perfect no I, I, you're absolutely dead on you are it's all in there again dematteus is just brilliant the way he crafts these things because it just it, on the surface it's just a funny book but then when you start digging sure, deeper it's, it's like one of, onions, my, one of my favorite know? writers yeah so another <laughs> another thing about general glory i wanted to mention so in all these twitter comments right where i was asking people for help with the cover. Dave Elliott chimed in. So Dave Elliott is actually one of the inkers on Justice League America number 48, just a couple issues from now. He worked with Paris Collins, and uh, Paris Collins penciled the five pages, and Dave Elliott inked those five pages in issue uh, JLA 48, and he said that he created Blazing Glory in the early 1980s and did a story with Paris Collins for the anthology A1. A couple of years later, at the DC offices, Andy Helfer said he'd like to do something like that in Justice League America and asked Paris and, uh, and Dave, in this case, Dave, to do the 1940s version of the character. So Dave Elliott and Paris Collins got to draw the 1940s adventures of uh, General Glory, and it all came from their work creating Blazing Glory. So that's awesome. That's so cool. And thank you so much for sharing that with us, Dave. That's really, I cannot wait to get to that issue now. So, all right, Andy, it's decision time. How did this installment of the, uh, <laughs> how did this installment <laughs> of the General Glory saga hold up? Was it genuinely funny? Did it, did the jokes go too far? Or what do you think? No, I think it was very balanced. I think that like there was just like a lot to like um even if you know some parts of it weren't my favorite thing that i've ever read in the series i think that like it's got a lot of charm to it i think that like what i obviously you know when this book came out i was five or six years old so <laughs> it wasn't uh you know i wasn't really around for that period of comic collecting but um the the idea that like it's not it's not self-serious and there's a lot to like here we just had a whole conversation about the whole max bit and sort of look into the comic convention at that period and kind of there's just like a lot of things to like in this issue i don't understand if someone picked this up and were like oh this wasn't the worth that what is it dollar 25 or whatever it is uh <laughs> they picked it up for i should have run the run the numbers on that but uh, if i if i would have picked this up at the stand i think i would have been definitely satisfied for a whole month absolutely agree absolutely agree this was this was a win guys this is definitely a win now we got four more installments to go maybe my opinion will change but as of right now the general glory saga is really enjoyable so all right so this is it uh this is where now, uh, Andy, we're going to have to go head-to-head, buddy. We're going to have to pick the... Wahaha Award. 
This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Andy will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Andy, you're the guest, which is unfortunate for me and everyone listening, but <laughs> what is your pick for the Bwahaha Award, sir? Mine's got to be when Guy Gardner is threatening the auctioneer, and he uses his ring, which, you know, sits on his middle finger, and he projects a small cemetery uh, tombstone, and the uh, or just a tombstone, as regular people call it, and uh, <laughs> they they uh, he he projects this tombstone and says your name here and it's got a little cross on the top and I just for whatever reason I just think that panel is wonderful uh, <laughs> it just says a lot about Guy Gardner and he's literally sort of you know giving him the middle finger <laughs> without actually doing it yeah it's absolutely hilarious and the R.I.P. your name here which is just hysterical and I, I think that's hilarious he doesn't even know the guy's name exactly yeah. so for me I picked a different moment but I I don't know I, I don't know there's a lot of funny moments in this thing so I don't know that it, you know either way I had to pick one so I picked one. it is um it's page two and three it is it's right in the beginning when Joe is at the at the rest home and Schmidt comes to visit him and he's thinking he's gonna go see an old friend and you get these panels of Schmidt there with the you know you mentioned the, the insane Kirby gun the insane Kirby bazooka and blasts a hole you know all through the house you know Joe d- jumps down and Joe isn't like you know he's like how dare you dastardly villain he's like you know that does it that does it you could have hurt somebody that time you nitwit so as it you know as if they do this every week you know it's as if they go through this all the time as if they're old friends or frenemies so that just cracked me up and it, I laugh every time I look at it so uh, it comes down to it we gotta decide which one is the better bit uh, Andy I'll let you uh, mount your defense first sir no I don't have one I think that like uh, mine was just a very a small moment that I enjoyed but I think overall the sort of you know the Arnim Zola or sort of Red Skull slash you know our archetypical German uh, German Captain America villain uh, showing up at the rest home the golden age rest home is, is a very good bit so i'll i'll I'll, uh, I'll defer i'll defer i will take the win because i'm selfish perfect so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so congratulations to joe jones and uh schmidt you guys have won the coveted Bwahaha award please wear it with pride it is as tangible as the laughter we give you now andy i need to ask a favor uh w- would you mind staying here at the new york embassy for a little bit and protect my copy of the super rare justice league america number 46 i'm afraid some crazed former nazi might show up and try to destroy my highly collectible comic book. Would you mind? Absolutely. No, I think I'm going to get uh, some uh, Uber Eats from the Sbarro down the street. Classic <laughs> New York pizza. It's a joke I stole from the office. All right. Yeah, uh, go ahead and uh, I guess I'll see you later. I guess I'm pulling monitor duty. Bingo. There you have it. But don't worry, Andy. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the London Embassy for the 22nd issue of Justice League Europe. Just imagine the mightiest heroes of our time. All of them on one team. Since there are so many of us, we have a chance to do more than just put out fires. We can be proactive. We can do some real good in the world. JLUcast brings you coverage of Justice League Unlimited, the ultimate gathering of DC's heroes and villains, and the culmination of the greatest interpretation of the DC Universe ever. Join Chris and Cindy Franklin as they relive the team-ups, the battles, the conspiracies. I had no idea that the Girl Scouts were responsible for the crop circle phenomenon. Few people do. Few even think to ask the question. The romance and the fun. A head start. You're getting soft in your old age. Don't you have a tall building to go leave? And the adventure continues. Find us wherever fine fire and water podcasts are available. Where am I? In the Palace of Glittering Delights. 
Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan, you never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe number 22. Back from break, and I'm here with my second co-host for this episode. Folks, this person is a returning guest to the show, back by popular demand. And I mean that, seriously. Many, many folks sang her praises about her previous appearance and requested more. Folks, she has a PhD in English. She is a college professor and a dean. She's delivered several papers on gender issues within superhero comic books and clearly does not have the good sense to realize she's wasting her time slumming with us. Folks, please help me welcome back to the show Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine. Welcome to the London Embassy, Jenny. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? All right. Thank you, Shag. I am thrilled to be back. I had a wonderful time last time, and I'm delighted that you asked me to come back for round two. So this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this. We had you to talk about it just like America last time. Now we've mm-hmm. got you here to talk about Europe. And I'm not kidding. Like, of all the guests, and, and sorry to all you other past guests, uh, <laughs> Jenny has been the one that I keep getting the most comments about, about how fantastic she was and the insight she brought. And, and it may also be because you were the first female guest we ever had as well. I'm not sure. I would say that might be it. <laughs> but at this point, you're kind of a legend. So you're back <laughs> taking a second bite of that apple. So... Don't screw it up. You don't want to ruin your reputation here. Oh, no pressure here at all. None whatsoever. <laughs> so, so we'll we'll hope for. Uh, I'm I'm aiming for uh, mildly competent. So um, <laughs> this turns out well. So. Don't, don't set that bar too high. Perfect. <laughs> right. So for those of you who are tuning in to hear more of Jenny's thoughts on gender issues in comics, you are in luck, folks. Because in case you hadn't realized, Power Girls in this comic. So <laughs> we are going to have some discussions on the back half about that so be sure to stay tuned now normally this is the part of the show where i thank the guests for being here and they tell us a little bit about their history of the jle or jli whichever but you folks you can go back to episode number 30 to hear jenny's origin with the jli and all about the amazing exploits of her and her husband who by the way you'll hear more of about him mm, somewhere down the line as well so uh, let's get into this though for today Uh, we are going to talk about justice league europe number 22 from dc comics cover dated january 1991 on the shelves december December 4th, 1990, the last issue to come out in 1990, folks. Cover price was $1, four shiny quarters, and the cover is by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. You want to tell us a little about the cover? All right. So the cover to Justice League Europe number 22 is an homage to National Lampoon's January 1973 cover, in which a distinctly perplexed dog is rather understandably giving the side eye to an off-age person who is pointing a gun at his head. (laughs) The issue 
was captioned, if you don't buy this magazine, we'll kill this dog. In this Justice League Europe take on the cover, there's a man pointing a gun at the head of Power Girl's mangy, ill-tempered cat, who has been the bane of the Justice Leaguers on both sides of the Atlantic. (laughs) In this instance, though, the caption does not ask the reader to buy the comic to save the cat, but it's rather, buy this comic or we won't shoot this cat. (laughs) And unlike the dog, Power Girl's cat is snarling and is exposed as claws and is clearly very ready to kick some butt. And given the cat's actions in this series so far, my money's on the cat. (laughs) (laughs) That is very fair. That is very fair. And and thank you so much, Jenny, for finding the National Lampoon reference. Because I I knew the symbolism here. Like, you know, you point Mm -hmm. a gun at the animal and whatever. Mm -hmm. I I didn't remember where it was from. So you pointed it out. I I Googled the National Lampoon cover. I had completely forgotten about it. The specifics of it, that is. And there's a few differences. But, you know, the the revolver looks the same. And Mm -hmm. and like you said, with Lampoon, the guy's off camera. And then here you can see the guy holding the cat, but just that cat's face is freaking hilarious. <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. And and honestly, I mean, the, the only reason I really sort of thought about the uh, National Lampoon cover is there's this sort of faux documentary movie called A Feudal and Stupid Gesture about sort of the early days of National Lampoon. And this was highlighted as part of the uh, movie. And I saw that uh, right around a couple of years ago and was thinking about that as I uh, was reading this issue. Wow. Good timing. Yeah. Thank you, Pandemic, for something, I guess, right? Yes, pretty pretty much. We watched, I'm sure everybody did, we watched a lot of movies when the pandemic started. So So is it fair to say this National Lampoon cover was pretty controversial at the time? I seem to recall it. Was yes, yeah, I think it was because well, I mean, you know, the idea of shooting shooting puppies is is right. never going to go down all that well. So, so this is from 1973, and here it is, 1990, and they're still making reference to it. I mean, I remember people talking about that that much time later. So clearly, it, it really resonated in people's memory. Yes. Yeah, I think so, and because uh, especially the look on that dog's face, he is mm-hmm. just disturbed by what's mm-hmm. happening to him. I love this cover. I mean, partially, I mean because. I'm probably not the only one has ever been owned by a very ill-tempered cat. We know that look. I mean, it, it, <laughs> you know, we do. It happens when you're stuffing them in the, you know, in their carrier to take them to the vet. It, it happens when you're at the vet. It happens when you get home. You know, they're angry about things. And um, and I also love the cover art. I mean, who does not love Marshall Rogers art? Um, that's going to change a little bit when we get to the interiors. But yeah. this cover is just fantastic. I love the colors, the layout, the green eye and the claws. I mean, that manginess of the cat really comes through, as does the sheer contempt for the person with the gun. And, of course, it's hilarious because of the National Lampoon homage. Right. Now, Terry Austin, you mentioned the art inside the exterior. So I I want to point out that Terry Austin is the inker on this cover. And Terry Austin's magic. He makes everything look amazing. Absolutely. I think that's where a lot of the difference is going to be. I I also, um, the the quote on the cover, whereas the dog cover on National Lampoon says, we'll kill this dog. Here it says, we won't shoot this cat. I think that's yep. intentional cho- word choice because, yes. you know, a little friendlier for the kids to say shoot versus kill, I guess. Yes, I think. <laughs> so so I do wonder, do you think someone could get away with a cover like this nowadays? Oh, I think probably not. Yeah. You know, I, and I mean, and I'm sure it's not going to resonate as well. I mean, I know it's a, you know, decades old comic at this point, but if someone, uh, my student's age were to pick this up, uh, they probably would not get the joke anyway because, I mean, you know, they're not going to understand what the National Lampoon cover was from nearly 50 years ago. So, right. Right. Um, but yeah, and I think that there's no way this is going to work now, no matter how angry that cat is. So Yeah, <laughs> it's a shame because it's a funny yeah. bit. It's a it really is. funny bit. It so. really is. 
Well, last thing to mention is just I, I love the corner boxes. Here you've got <laughs> Captain Adam and Metamorpho flexing muscles. I think someone once referenced it as a Hans and Franz kind of moment there. <laughs> so looks great. So. Yes. All right, let's get in the inside. So the plot and the breakdowns are by Keith Giffen. Script is by Gerard Jones. Penciler is Marshall Rogers doing his last of three issues. Inker mm-hmm. is Jose Marzan. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colors is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editors Kevin Dooley. And editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Catnap. Uh, you want to start us off? All right. As the pages of Justice League Europe number 22 open, Power Girl is, per usual, angry. <laughs> she slams the door of the embassy and stomps up the stairs, complaining about the ingratitude of lousy little ingrates. Catherine Colbert thinks that Power Girl is having man problems, but it turns out that the male that is giving Kara trouble is not human, and it's not Guy, but it, rather, it's the cat. He's disappeared. In fact, he's been catnapped. We then cut to the apartment of the abductors. One of the pair is already ruining the decision, but his partner is convinced that the cat is their key to fame and fortune. But then, crashes come from the bedroom where the cat has destroyed everything. The bed, the lamp, the chair, and the Grateful Dead poster hanging on the wall. (laughs) The cat is perched atop the ruined bed with his leg pointed in the air, which makes one wonder if he has left a damp present for his kidnappers as well. <laughs> so, the blonde kidnapper then makes a very, very bad decision. He's going to teach this little chap some manners. The cat has some different ideas and proceeds to unleash the same kind of wrath on the kidnapper as he already has on the bedroom. So back at the embassy, Catherine Colbert and Captain Adam are trying desperately to get the other one to tell Power Girl about the fate of her cat. Their discussion is interrupted by the yell of, my cat, from the second floor, as it becomes clear that she has found out from the evening news. And then returning to the catnapper's apartment, the one who tried to punish the cat is heavily bandaged and has his arm in a sling, but he is still determined to get a sizable ransom for Kitty. We then pivot to a mysterious man entering a building with the sign MetaWise Accounting Firm, which is a front for a call center slash research firm that supplies information on superheroes to supervillains, all for a price. And yes, handily, they do take credit cards. And our unknown entrepreneur has been watching the catnap coverage on the news and sees a potential business opportunity to expand his research database and sales, if only he can get his hands on that cat. All right, I'll take it from here. So Kara attempts to recruit the help of Batman, the world's greatest detective. But the Dark Knight simply hangs up on her when he discovers the kidnapped victim is a cat. The kidnappers then notify the media of their ransom of 10,000 British pounds. But later, in desperation, they decide to simply surrender the cat after being viciously injured by the mangy beast. Mr. Bigger, the information broker to supervillains, sends a team to recover the cat before the Just League Europe can respond. Mr. Bigger's men in suits retrieve the cat, paying the kidnappers more money than the requested ransom. Now, the League is unaware that Mr. Bigger's agents have recovered the cat, and our heroes are just frustrated as the kidnappers fail to surrender the feline as planned. Meanwhile, Mr. Bigger has a team of doctors surgically implant a camera and transmitter into the eye socket of the cat. His plan is to use the cat to observe and uncover the secrets of the Justice League, selling the information for a hefty profit. Mr. Bigger's agents return the cat to the original kidnappers, much to their dismay. The kidnappers are instructed to return the cat to the Justice League. Late at night at the London Embassy, there's a quiet little knock on the back door, and Kara opens the door to find her cat returned. On the last page, Mr. Bigger's call center texts monitor the cat's new visual implant. They explain that they'll need to be patient, as what interests a cat may not be precisely what interests their clients. With that, they watch the cat drink from a toilet. (laughs) Next issue, Crimson Fox, The Inside Story. 
All right. So, Jenny, what'd you think? I loved this issue. Wasn't this a lot of fun? It I really mean, was. Yeah, it was. It was really nice to get back to some purely fun and just utterly ridiculous issues. And this is one of them. So it's it's worth mentioning. This is our third issue in a row of like mm-hmm. humorous day in the life sort of stories. Mm-hmm. We had the one with Beefeater. Uh, mm-hmm. Then we had the one where they moved to London. And now this one. And, of course, but prior to that, we had five issues of The Extremists. So it is nice to get a breather. But yes. I do wonder if three issues was too long. And, and, and I'm saying this, and I'm not really sure myself. I don't know. Individually, I found each issue to be really funny, actually. This one especially. Yes. Uh, however, the Just League Europe was kind of known for being the action-oriented series. So I, I wonder at the time, and I'm sure I could check the letters pages, but I wonder if the time the people were unhappy with so much funny in the Just League Europe. I, yeah, I don't know. Because like you, I, I really enjoyed the breather because those previous five extreme there was some pretty heavy sledding there for those so it was very nice to have a break and it's kind of nice to sort of see them running around london although i must say i personally am somewhat ambivalent about the move to london which i I mean i get but there was a lot of fun at the paris embassy and it allowed for discussing the very real issue that jle doesn't really have a ton of members from e very fair very fair that's going to change some but uh it, it was nice to sort of see that tension a little bit in paris I, and I agree because I feel like Paris was underutilized. I mean, every yes. once in a while, you know, we'd see the Eiffel Tower or, you know, or whatever. But, like, they didn't really explore the city like I thought they would. Uh, I, I would say they've explored London almost as much, uh, you know, in two issues as they did Paris in 20 issues. I don't know. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Because the thing that they all seem to do in Paris, which kind of drove me nuts, was that the female uh, team members or wives went shopping a lot. There, there weren't a whole mm. lot of museum visits or let's go take in some culture or, you know, go tour local wineries none of that it was let's go shopping (laughs) yeah yeah good point Hmm. um some other things that i loved about this issue it was really good to see elrond again (laughs) you know i love that uh, kara was sporting a superman t-shirt that was hilarious yeah wasn't that great and that speaking of hilarious batman actually has a bit of a sense of humor in this one Uh, you know we'd like to forget that he has one of those occasionally Uh, (laughs) it it was also nice to see marshall rogers get a chance to draw batman again even if it was just like just kind of like the head cowl shot really Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, he, he obviously became famous doing that. So it's nice to right. see that again. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so too. I really enjoyed that. There was sort of a moment for him to, to revisit Batman. And, and I mean, I love the call center setup for the supervillain research firm. That was hilarious. That was just terrific. Before you leave though, and I got to mention that. So the whole idea of Mr. Bigger and his call center, right? So this mm-hmm. predates the calculator who, uh, yeah. during an identity crisis, they sort of transformed him into this information broker for criminals, essentially the same thing. That was 2004. So this is way ahead of that. Yes. So I do wonder if this is a reaction to Barbara Gordon's Oracle, who first appeared in Suicide Squad number 23. So she's been around for two years by this point. So I wonder if this is a reaction to that or if Keith Giffen just kind of got to it on his own. I don't I don't really know. No, I, I have no idea either. I mean, sort of the thing that I was, was kind of thinking about, because I mean, as you know, sort of a person in sort of high school in the uh, late 80s or early 90s, I mean, all of those, you know, 1-800, you know, call for, you know, whether it was going to be television psychics or musical <laughs> or whatever it was, um, you know, operator standing by. I mean, I just had that very much in my head when I was reading that particular section of the of the comic. I'm really glad you pointed that out because that is something that I hadn't even thought about. I'd forgotten how prevalent, you're right, the call centers were back then. And oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's an artifact that uh, doesn't easily uh, connect no. there. 
No, no, no. I mean, uh, a lot of times when I'll mention things like that to my students, they have no idea what I'm talking about when I'll say things like operator standing by. No clue. Right, so, right. <laughs> <laughs> the internet has ruined, you know, call 1-800 numbers. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Some other things about this comic, the art. I mean, I love Marshall Rogers art. I really do. I mean, what he did with Batman, with Marshall Rogers and Steve Englehart, I mean, that was just extraordinary. But, and I know as you've mentioned in a couple of the, the past episodes, it doesn't really seem to be quite on model here. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't. And I mean, it gets better as things go on, but it seemed for me that were some of the ones that are particularly problematic, especially in those early panels, in the early pages, a lot of the Power Girl and Catherine Colbert, just it's not quite it. Right. Uh, nor is Sue. The male characters kind of come out a little bit better, but particularly the female characters are not what we've been seeing up till this point. And it's disappointing because we we know what Marshall's capable of. Um, right. and, and I would say I would extend this to like Mr. Biggers and his people too. They, yes. they look just generic as can be yes. and, and different from panel to panel even. So it's very disappointing. Um, I would say this issue is a little bit better than the last one. I think it's a different anchor, but mm-hmm. still it, it's not great. And I do wonder too, like this is clearly Keith Giffen breakdowns because there's a lot of nine panel grids and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if maybe that was part of it. Maybe he struggled, uh, Marshall struggled having to work from someone else's breakdowns maybe. I I don't know. I, I don't I think don't that know. would be the case, but it's no. it's disappointing. Yeah. No, it's just, I mean, sort of my takeaway from sort of the, the, the three issues that he was on was that sometimes things just just aren't a good fit. And I think this just might be just not have been a good fit. Yeah. So. I, I want to say a couple positive things real quick, like page, page 18, which is the shot yes. where Crimson Fox and Metamorpho are just, they're waiting for the, the, the kidnappers and the, mm-hmm. the fog rolls in and it's, oh, it, yeah. that's a beautiful page. It's it really, really, really nice. Nicely yeah. done. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it, and like I said, it gets a lot better as things go on. And to me, that's that's one of my favorite pages in the comic because it's just th- that shot where the fog's coming in is just gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. And yeah. then the other one I'll mention is page 21, the second to the last page where Power Girl's in the kitchen with Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, Catherine continues to look off model. But Kara looks great, but really great use of Zipatone. And mm-hmm. um, it really makes those pages really shine. So, and, and very clever too, the way it's laid out where the cat you can't see the cat. Uh, yes. You just see, you hear it. I think those, those those are nice pages. Yeah. No, they really are. And that that to me, like when the cat finally gets returned, you don't see the cat come back. All you see is the word balloon that says cack. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, which I mean is, I mean, of course, the way that the cat's going to announce that he's back. Um, but also the cat is Power Girl and Power Girl is the cat. I mean, part of the reason why Power Girl loves the cat as much as she does, even though she never really admits it, although she says at one point that she was fond of him that she and the cat are pretty much the same they're both angry all the time they both are sort of showing their claws whether those are literal or metaphorical and power girl's loss of the cat here is because she feels like uh, in some ways i mean i'm going to english major it up a little bit kind of feels like in some ways she's losing herself Hmm. and um, that's why i think she's so drawn to this particular cat Interesting. I I thought uh, one element of it might be, too, is, you know, her origin at this point has just been messed up and messed up and messed up. Oh, yeah. At this point, she's Atlantean, uh, whatever. But the loss and basically being on her own, she's lost anyone that she was, you know, was there as a support for her. And her and the cat are kind of all they had. So I I was seeing that. But you make a great point about how the anger and how they reflect each other. In fact, I read one interview with Giffen where he said that they struggled with Power Girl – 
until they gave her the cat, and that seemed to help them uh, writing her. Really? No, that's mm-hmm. really interesting. So, because uh, I can see where it, it would be, because I mean, you can sort of display some of that anger into feline form and give her something to play off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I can see where that would work. It, it's also worth mentioning the cat is clearly based on Bill the cat from oh, yeah. Bloom County. I mean, the, yeah. the the mangy look, the squinty <laughs> eye, the noises, like you said, like cack. You know, yes. he's, he's the best yes. tail, the floppy ear. I mean, yeah. it is. Oh, it's so not. They didn't even try. It is clearly yeah. Bill the cat, and I oh, love them for that. Yes, I absolutely. Absolutely do too. I mean, so if we're going to be doing homages to things from, uh, you know, the 70s all the way through like the 80s, I mean, Bill the Cat was just a fantastic pick. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and speaking of the cat, the thing that I really love about the close of the issue is that all of this has been put into kidnapping this cat so they can put an implant so that they can see what's happening at the embassy. And they don't really get a whole lot of great intel. All they right. is they, you know, they get the cat drinking out of the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> And we should give Marshall Rogers credit for that, too, or maybe yes. it's Keith Gibson's breakdowns. I don't know. But the way that is laid out perfectly where you get yes. two panels where they're they're just staring at the monitor and then the last page, how can a creature drink out of a toilet like that? It's <laughs> yes. beyond me, sir. It's beyond me. Yeah. It's just brilliant. Yeah. No, I love that part. And you know, I mean, and as ill-tempered as the cat has been and uncooperative has been so far, I mean, of course, he's not going to – not that, of course, he realizes he's going to be giving them intel, but of course, he's going to be uncooperative to the people that kidnapped him anyway. Right. They're going to get a lot more toilet shots, I think. <laughs> I, I like to think the cat's super powered. I mean, I know he's not, but no, you think I about know. it. At this point, he's fought Blue uh, Guy Gardner. Right. He he caused all kinds of havoc at the Justice League Europe Embassy. He fought, you know, the guy who tried to steal art paintings. I mean, he he has kicked the crap out of a lot of people. And then this issue, he basically defeats these two kidnappers and even knocks their door down. So while he's not actually super powered, I like the idea that cats are so difficult to control that almost like every cat is super powered to some extent. <laughs> Yes, and especially the ones that are feral. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> that makes it extra special. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that stood out to me that really drove me nuts is the absolutely ridiculous stereotypical British accents in this thing between the small child and the kidnappers. It's it's like it was written with a steady diet of Oliver Twist and the young ones. I mean, I, it really seems to be it. And it's yes. I, I won't try and quote it because I would do a terrible British British accent as well, but you guys will see it in some of the gallery pages. It's ridiculously over the top. I mean, they go way out of their way to try and make as many ridiculous British references as they can. And it's, uh, it, it's a little hard to swallow. It's almost like a parody, and yet I don't think it's supposed to be. I, yeah, and I agree. And the thing that struck me is that as they're trying to sort of visually represent the word balloon, sort of that British accent, they went way farther with that than they did when they were in Paris trying to make certain characters sound French. That's and true. It's just very weird. I get the sense, you know, because we've seen uh, an issue or two ago with the Beef Eater, which was a love of Faulty Towers, mm-hmm. that I suspect there's a lot of love of British television here, which is driving some of this stuff. Yes, but it was a bit heavy. Oh, yeah. That. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, to the point where it's distracting. So, yeah. Yes. And, and, and I do wonder, the two kidnappers are named Johnny and Robin. And I just, I feel like there's some sort of British reference there. I don't know. Martin Gray, tell me if I'm missing something there. But I feel like it's a reference to somebody. I just couldn't figure out who it was. Yes. No, I couldn't either. But their their misery was genuinely funny. I mean, I, <laughs> it is funny to watch these people who are trying to, you know, commit a crime get, you know, absolutely turned up end. And they're the victims by the end, which is hilarious. And uh, I, I that genuinely uh, made me laugh quite a bit. Yes. Yeah, I did too. Uh, but, you know, they get what they deserve. I mean, you, you kidnap a cat and you particularly an ill-tempered cat and 
you're going to get your butt kicked. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I love how much the cat made it so that particularly the one had resolved by the time this was all done that he was going to turn from his life of crime and never rob anyone from, for anything ever again. So. Right, right. <laughs> That's one of the things this series is great at doing is uh, putting a ridiculous situation uh, in the hands of people and, and ha- having it become a life changer. And it's uh, it's great. I love it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in fact, the, one of the bits in here is the whole world is worried about this cat. So you see newscasts from all over the world. Yes. And I, I will read my favorite bit here where it says uh, the kingdom, meaning the, the UK, had begun tying yellow ribbons around <laughs> scratching posts and table legs. That genuinely made me laugh out loud. I thought that I was loved that part. I really did. <laughs> Super fun. In the awkward references that don't age well, there's a Saddam Hussein reference in here. Uh, yes. Captain Adam makes a mention of how uh, they're playing the media like Saddam does. Like, whoa, that, that, that kind of took me out of the book a little bit. But <laughs> Yes, but it would have been very timely in 1991. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, the only other thing, I, I, I and this is more for speculation, but in that beautiful scene where the fog rolls in that we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, Rex is there with Crimson Fox out of costume. And as far as I know, I think this is the first time anyone from Justice League Europe has confirmed that they know who Crimson Fox is out of her costume. They've had their suspicions, but I don't know that it was ever confirmed at any point for, for them, I should say. So mm-hmm. this, uh, I, I think this is a meaningful moment that they, the writers probably just missed to, to make a big point about. Yeah, I agree, because I can't remember anything prior to this where they know who she is. So I think you're probably right about that. I think so. In fact, her, her real identity was confirmed in a Justice League America comic sort of by accident a while ago where they had her re- reveal her identity in a situation that uh, I, the reader, we all kind of knew who she was, but they hadn't actually officially you know, told us so. And there'll be a lot more on that in the next few issues. <laughs> yes, I think there will be. Yep. <laughs> so overall, this was a super fun comic. I really it enjoyed it. I genuinely laughed a lot. It made me like the cat even more than I did before. What about you? I, absolutely. This is one of my complete favorites and uh, when you talked to me about coming back on the show and I saw this one was still available I wanted this one very much because I I love the cat you know I'm fond of ill-tempered mangy beasts I've uh, had a lot of them <laughs> over the years and, uh, um, so when this was available I'm like oh that one's mine you shouldn't talk about Tim that way that's oh, not nice. hey. <laughs> <laughs> no no he, not him so <laughs> we've had the four-legged variety so. <laughs> so with as much as we enjoyed this comic now comes the hard part this This is where we've got to nominate the One Punch Award. So this is where we nominate our favorite moment from the issue, whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny or awe-inspiring or whatever. Both myself and Jenny will pick one moment and will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Jenny, you're the guest, so what is your pick for the One Punch Award? I had trouble with this one, Shag. I really, really did because there were so many moments that I loved in this comic from, you know, the uh, tie the yellow ribbon uh, bit to the cover. I adored the cover, Mm. but, you know, but the thing that I came up with was when Sue and Power Girl are calling Batman to, (laughs) (laughs) to go try and bring his detective skills to find the cat. And Batman, of course, thinks that there's a real person that's been kidnapped and he says uh is it Catherine?" and she's like well no but you're getting warmer if you take the first three letters <laughs> and then she says you remember snapper car <laughs> it's this is sort of our new snapper car except it's not a person so for me that is my nominee for the one punch award 
It's a great moment. It really is. And it's fun because they did a good job in the dialogue. Like, Batman still has a sense of urgency. He's still Batman. Yes. He's like, we don't have time for this. You know, tell me the answer. Yes. So there's a lot of fun there. You know, with her wearing the Superman shirt, it's almost a little world's finest-ish, you know? Yes, so exactly. It's, like, it's a super fun moment. I really, really like that. My, mine is also a funny moment. I don't always pick funny moments for this, but this one was. Mine was how it all, the whole story builds and builds and builds and culminates in these two guys, criminals, watching the cat drink out of a toilet. You know, <laughs> after all their efforts and everything they went through to, you know, with the espionage and get the camera and the cat, and that's what they're stuck doing is watching the cat drink out of a toilet. And that look on, you know, the, the way the yes. panels were framed. That was my favorite moment. So, so now we have to decide which one's the winner. They're both good. They're both good. Last time it was easy. We picked the same one. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, yeah. This time, I, I really, that was, I like the toilet one as well very, very much. So I could be persuaded. I, I tend to want to go with mine, A, because it's my ego and I like to win. Uh, <laughs> B is I do feel like this one's sort of built, like everything built to yes. that moment. So that was the big payoff. I love that sort of situation where something builds and builds and builds and the payoff actually works. So whereas the Batman joke was funny, but it was sort of contained for that moment. It was only one moment in time. So that's my position on it. You know, All you- right. I am willing to change my vote. The toilet scene wins it. <laughs> Perfect. That is exactly why people were hoping you'd come back to the show for poorly humor. <laughs> That's exactly right. Perfect. There you go. There you go. So we've got it now. <laughs> you said you weren't setting that bar high. So yeah, perfect. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> All right. Well, congratulations to the toilet bowl and the cat, I guess. Uh, you are the winner of the One Punch Award. Wear it with pride, folks. It is as tangible as our love for that moment. All right. So we are going to do something a little different here. Normally we do... Character Spotlight. Now, I guess this is still technically a character spotlight, but we are going to look at uh, the Justice League book and maybe a character or two. I'm going to let Jenny lead this uh, from the lens of, is it fair to say, some feminist perspective? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it is. So Power Girl, to me, has always been a really fascinating character because she's so angry. Uh, there is so much made about, you know, the size of her chest. Uh, there's, <laughs> yeah. Seriously, last night, Chag, I was, you know, doing some research, looking around online. There's a website that speculates about what size bra Power Girl wears. I found that on a Reddit thread. People were trying to guess. Yeah. Uh, it's disturbing. So... And then, of course, I mean, her costume is known as the cutout is, of course, generally known as the boob window. I'll share a quick story. So my stepson, who he's 22 now, but he grew up watching a lot of my animated cartoons and reading Mm -hmm. comics and things like that. And one day I was out, I don't know, work, the grocery store, whatever. I don't know. I come home and my wife is in the family room with my son and they're watching one of these Justice League cartoons. And Mm -hmm. she just looks at me with the angriest look I've ever seen. And she goes, who the hell is Power Girl? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so clearly, uh, you know, what attracts people to Power Girl or what you notice about her uh, caught her attention and got me in trouble. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly she got over it. But, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but the thing is, is that with Power Girl, with that boob window, I mean, that's that's what she's known for as opposed to her powers or her personality or any of that other kind of stuff. And I'm sure everybody knows the story about the boob window getting bigger and bigger and bigger. When Wally Wood created the character, apparently he tried to make the boob window bigger, uh, the various issues to see if the editors were going to catch it. The chest size, too. The, the chest size, too. Yes, yeah. absolutely. 
I didn't know if that was apocryphal or not. And Tim and I were at a Comic-Con and we happened to see Joe Staten and he did confirm that that was true. So Jerry Conway um, confirmed it for me. So, okay. yep. so mm-hmm. yeah. So, so we've all heard the story. So, but that's the thing is that Kara is known for the size of her rack. I mean, for the, you know, there's really no other way to put it. And that to me is troubling. And particularly when we get into Justice League Europe, we get that. But then as things unfold, she just gets angrier and angrier all the time. She's the one that really espouses a lot of feminist rhetoric, particularly if you kind of fast forward and see post breakdowns or some specifics. And she's a mad feminist. And so we've sort of conflated anger with feminism mm. in this book in ways that, that to me are, are kind of troubling. She's much angrier under this writer's version than she was, you know, when Giffen and DiMatteis were, were sort of there at the beginning of the book, but because she's become a humorous loner who hates nearly everything but the cat. Yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah, I know part of their goal was to make her the the quote unquote straight man, you know, where is yes. like uh, everyone else was goofing around and cutting up. And then once they knew Kara showed up, things were going to get serious and, you know, mm-hmm. people better get out of her way. And I also know that they were leaning a little bit on her original appearances in those all star comics because she had a very adversarial relationship with Wildcat because he was sort of old guard and, you know, was a bit sexist. And so she wasn't mm-hmm. putting up with his crap. So I think they leaned a little bit on that anger. But yeah, they, without a doubt, it went way too far. I, yeah, it absolutely did. Because if you go back and look at some of those old all-star comics, I mean, she is absolutely very saucy and she doesn't take a lot of crap, but it doesn't, it doesn't morph into this. Just, she's just so angry all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then if you look at, um, there was a four issue standalone miniseries in 88 that was Paul Kupperberg and Rick Hoberg, which continued the Atlantean origins. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, cause you know, that had happened in Secret Origins 11. You know, she was strong and empowered and there and she, was irritated by things, but she just wasn't this humorless shrew as she has become in this iteration of her. And if you go back and look at when JLE began, there was a lot more dimension to her at the beginning. She was really excited when, when like that first panel where she appears, she was really excited about joining the team, said it was an honor. Then she meets Wally, but you know. right. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah. yeah. But there's, there's a real sweetness to her that disappears as JLE unfolds. And then she becomes, like I said, that humorless shrew. And for me, that's as troubling as sort of the awful things that are done to Wally when they made him nothing but a lech. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of tough. Took a long time to course correct that. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely did. And it's, I don't think the Power Girl ever really gets course corrected. Uh, and that's unfortunate. I'll argue with that point with you. I think around 2005, when oh, they yeah, yeah. when they brought her back to her Kryptonian origins and yes. gave her her own series, I feel like they got a, a good handle on her at that point. But I, I think up until then, it took that long. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree with that. I, I um, probably should have said that under this particular writer and in this particular iteration. Oh, absolutely. As we sort yeah. of go on. We do not get sort of uh, a happy Kara at any point. And I know that is what they're trying to do is that they're trying to like contrast her with sort of like that girl next door, Sue Dibney, and, uh, you know, who's kind and helpful and, con- you know, uh, competent and tolerant. And then with Catherine Colbert, who is successful and sexy and, and also competent, but they're both so even tempered and good humored. And that's so contrasted with Power Girl's anger that, and you're right, they were trying to make her the straight man, but all of a sudden, all they did was turn her into a bitch. Yeah. Uh, and that to me is, is kind of troubling. Well, you brought up a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned was the, the, it's okay to have an angry character, but when you lace it with all the, the, the feminist items that Kate mm-hmm. brought up and her trying to be, you know, make a point of being a strong female, it does sort of blur the lines and just it it looks like an attack on feminist agendas is what it really looks like. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's and I'm sure that's not what was intended, but that's very much how it comes off. And and it kind of comes off even more so when we sort of fast forward post breakdowns when we get that costume retool. Oh. Uh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> that's no. the the we're talking. Are we talking about the blue and the blue one, right? Yes, yeah. yes, the okay. blue one with with the diamond cut out. Oh my gosh! Uh, because and there's sort of like when when we get to that, we also get a lot more cheesecake from some of the other female members. Sort of like when the the costumes are first revealed, there's sort of this scene where Doctor Light is coming out of the shower and is wrapped in a towel, and Crimson Fox is there, and Doctor Light is zipping Power Girl into the new costume, and Ralph is walking by, and he's not deliberately trying catch a view of anything but he sees them and then power girl snarls at ralph as he looks through the door what are you looking at and i mean she just wants to take his head off mm-hmm. we've got dr light who's uh, debating a new hairstyle and crimson fox is encouraging her to get it so so those gender roles are sort of breaking down even more we're still getting Kara sort of this angry feminist and then dr light and crimson fox are talking hairstyles and crimson fox says that dr light ought to get the new hairstyle because it will drive Z-Men wild. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, so we're getting types here as opposed to actual fully developed depictions of women. Yeah. And now, I, I you know, Jenny said it a minute ago, I just want to reiterate, these stories we're talking about are after breakdowns. This is after Giffen and DiMatteis are off the book. So this is a right. different writer. So Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. And um, But I think that sort of the things that have been building up to that point kind of culminate in like, it's issue 37 and 40, um, because we get, uh, that's when uh, Kara kind of has this, you know, she sort of uh, does her feminist empowered speech when she basically tells Dr. Light to ignore Crimson Fox because she thinks controlling men is the greatest power a woman can have and power comes from self-reliance and dignity. And at that point, Crimson Fox says, all right, well, if your dignity is so precious, why do you have this front window in your costume? Mm -hmm. And then Power Girl, sort of the the line that uh, sticks with me is she says, this costume only shows what I am, female, healthy and strong. And if men want to degrade themselves by staring and drooling and tripping over themselves, that's their problem. I'm not going to apologize for it, Hmm. which sounds which sounds great. I mean, you know, I mean, she's seeming to own sort of the way that she's depicted. She's owning the way that her body looks. She's owning her clothing choices. But then we fast forward to the diet soda stuff. So before we do that, let's let's talk yes. about the boob window for a second. So that's because okay. I, I, I I've said this before on the show, folks. I'm not terribly enlightened. Okay, so I I'm a guy who <laughs> says the wrong thing a lot of times, and I own it. And there's that. So everything you said about the description of the boob window actually sounded pretty good to me. There, I've also heard the other one where she says she doesn't wear a symbol because she says she's not worthy of the, of the Superman right. shield yet. I, I like right. both of those. Yes. But I actually like the this version where. She she says that I'm not, you know, I, I'm wearing this and I'm showing who I am and I'm proud of it and I'm not going to hide myself. And I, I actually like that. So that's, I guess, one check in the plus column for, for them. But you're right. It's about to go completely off the rails. It is. And that and that's the thing, because if they had said that and left it there, I think that absolutely would have been a way that we are starting to take care of and maybe make her less angry, but just sort of drawing boundaries about, you know, sort of knowing who she is and not really caring what other people think about her and that their issues are their issues and she's going to do her, right? Mm-hmm. But then they uh, they don't stick the landing in the future issues, which are where things for me start to go off the rails. So here she is. She's got this new costume, which is 
so i mean it's it's a costume of its time <laughs> <laughs> that's fair <laughs> i mean she's got the headband you know i mean it's 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 a look but then she, we get to the diet soda issue so we're medicalizing anger we're making it so that kara's anger is attributed to the fact that she drinks a lot of diet root beer so um, that case like i don't even remember this and I, obviously yeah. you've mentioned it to me a couple times in, in yeah. just passing discussions so this came out of justice league europe where they just revealed that her diet soda habit yes. was yeah. making her mean? Yes. Yeah. It's sort of like a, a issue 37 and 40. So Dr. Light says to Kara, I used to suffer from the same problem, meaning mood swings. Uh, I always tried to be a strong woman, but somehow after I f- received my powers, I found myself acting like a, well, like an unpleasant person to be with. So, and then Power Girl says, what's that got to do with me? And Dr. Light says, nothing, Kara, but my doctor discovered a condition common to superpowered women. It is treatable. Kara, would you change your personality if you could, right? Mm-hmm. Which, asking if she wants to change her personality when this is pretty much who she's been, that's that's an issue there too. But then the diet soda big reveal happens in issue number 40. Dr. Light's doctor has found that, as she says, certain artificial food additives made me irrationally combative and, well, witchy, shall we say. Gosh. And your comrades here tell me that you consume too many artificially sweetened sodas and that your worst outbursts of temper follows soda binges. Holy crap. Oh, it, it, Shag, it gets better. So <laughs> by, then, by better, I assume you mean worse. <laughs> oh, I, I, I sure do. Well, uh, uh, because, hold on. I want to I unpack okay. that for a second. Because yeah. when Dr. Light was introduced in Crisis and Infinite Earths, right. she really was a bitch. But yes. it came from a position of confidence in her knowledge. She was one of the mm-hmm. smartest people in the world. Yes. She had to fight her way to be respected in, a, in an industry, mo- in, in culture, Japanese culture, mostly that celebrated men and not women. And so right. that was where her anger anger was coming from. And yes. when they brought her into Just Like Europe, they made, as I recall, I, again, I haven't read ahead, but I seem to recall they made her very sappy and sweet. They but, did. Yeah. So I, so I, them excusing her behavior mm-hmm. uh, for, oh my gosh. All right. So tell me how it gets worse, please. I'm looking okay. forward to that. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. Brace yourself. All right. So we've had ourselves, Kara, who's been this, you know, this feminist, she's been arguing for feminist ideals. She's been saying that she doesn't care whether men look at her, you know, with, with longing or not, because she owns her costume and she owns her body until she says, in trying to keep my body trim and fatless, trying to live up to some male idea of the female body, I've been making myself insane. So this is from the woman that just a few pages earlier was proclaiming that her costume reflected a strong and empowered female body, one that was home for an equally strong and empowered female mind. But her behavior and what she says here indicates that she must not actually believe that. Right, right. And and I think I can see what the writer was trying to do very, and unfortunately executed very clumsily. He was trying to say that, you know, trying to live up to some male ideals of the wrong thing to do. Yeah. But this is the wrong place to say that when you're, when you're dealing (laughs) with this character and well, the whole, there's a lot of problems here, as you've mentioned, but Mm. I get, I think I, it was probably well-intentioned, but he totally botched that landing. Yeah. No, and that's the thing. And I mean, I, I at no point am I saying that any of this was done deliberately or that it was done with sort of an eye to misogyny. I'm just like you said, they didn't stick the landing and it's it's a product of it, its time. Oof. I mean, I th- I think that we're thinking about things 
as far as what feminism is, who's a feminist, you know, what what it means to be male and what it means to be female. We're having those conversations in the culture in larger ways than we ever have before. And I think that as modern readers looking back on a 30-year-old comic, there's some stuff that's not going to sit right. And that's yeah. just because it's a product of its time. It's just strange because you look in the other book, Justice League America, and yeah. now Fire uses sex as one of her tools in her toolkit. Yes. But yes. never, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling for words here. As I, I remember, guys, I'm not bright. Uh, she, she never uses <laughs> it. She never uses it inappropriately. It's never, no. there's never a, a negative connotation to it. It's just she's very sex positive and she uses what she's got to her benefit. And it demonstrates, I think, her intelligence, actually, that she knows how to get what she wants. Yes, absolutely. And Crimson Fox does the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's the thing. And they, and I think that that's sort of the issue of like being secure in their sexuality and secure in who they are. They're secure in, in, in their bodies and how they use their bodies and how they dress themselves in ways that Power Girl isn't. And because Power Girl isn't secure in those kinds of ways, that's why I think we get the rage and the anger that kind of comes on through because she never really is able to articulate what body image or sexuality specifically means to her. Mm-hmm. Which kind of leads her, I think, to that inability to internalize the idea of of sort of being fully integrated and sort of what female power means for herself. Hmm. And it's and it's not even just a, an issue with the anger because they did that with Big Barda. You know, Big Barda yes. was always angry, and yet, yeah. and there, I mean, I guess you could argue there were a few issues when she was dealing with being like the quote unquote housewife. Maybe some mm-hmm. of that, but even some of that was to demonstrate how ridiculous the expectations that we we put yes. on the genders. So yes. yeah, it's. Uh, I, I lack the words to to describe my frustration in thinking how this could have been done differently. Uh, well, yes, you know, but but if, if it had been done differently, we wouldn't have something interesting to talk about this evening. So. <laughs> Power Girl's always interesting to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, and I love Power Girl. I really do. She's actually one of my favorite characters, and and I like it when she's been, you know, uh, treated differently, in, you know, in other books. Um, but here, it's just sort of this one-note, angry feminist true, which takes away some of my enjoyment from some of it. But as a character, I just absolutely adore her. And I, I like to see it when, when better things are done for her. Well, let's bring it back to this issue itself. So like in okay. this issue specifically, before Diet Soda becomes an issue, like how do you <laughs> feel Kara comes like She's obviously, you know, furious in the beginning, but yes. she has, you know, there, there's at least a situation which merits it. You know, yes. it's, it's not like just like she's randomly mad at, I don't know, whatever, the bad guy of the week. She's, and this has got a personal connection to you, to her. So how do you feel she's handled in this issue? Um, I mean, I think pretty well on this issue because, I mean, that rage is absolutely understandable. I mean, if someone catnapped my kitty, I, I, I'd be very upset. So, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I can understand that she's doing everything that she can to get the cat back. I mean, her rage does sort of extend beyond the catnappers, though, because, I mean, she's mad at Catherine because she thinks Catherine hasn't told her. She's mad at Batman because, of course, he's not going to go look at for her cat. Mm-hmm. She's mad at the rest of the team members because the second that it's revealed that the cat is missing – they haven't sort of dropped everything and mobilized everything to go find the cat. But again, as a pet owner, I get that. Mm-hmm. So I think within the context of this comic, the rage is appropriate and it's not sort of over the top or out of bounds because it's it's directed at something and something unjust. And I think the last page gives us a little bit of that where she does say, you know, I really like that scraggly, stinking, ugly little cat. Yes. So I, yeah. I think we get some of that at the end. So at, at least in this one issue, uh, yes. it, maybe it's merited. 
Yeah, exactly. And and there is and that you know that panel you just referred to that shows some humanity to her that we don't see in a lot of the rest of it. But here she gets to be human because she loves her cat and she's happy when the cat finally gets dropped off on the doorstep. Yeah, you know. So I mean, so she's she's got dimension here that she had back in like JLE, you know, the first issue. Some of that dimension comes back in this in this particular issue, and that's kind of other than the cat stuff. Why I love this one as much as I do. Yeah, and, you know. Now I think about it, she had a little bit last issue too. That was the year, yeah. uh, the one in London. Where yes. she, you know, uh, arranges for Captain Adam unknowingly to give yes. Catherine some lingerie. <laughs> she's trying to, yes. you know, she's shipping them, if you will. Yes, yes, she absolutely is. But maybe she should have given them a little heads up that she was buying sexy nineties. But you know. well, I think that was part of the fun is not telling yeah. him. So uh, yeah, that's, that's probably true. So. <laughs> who hasn't played a, uh, an office for prank of that, of that nature? Oh, anybody who didn't want to get fired. But anyway, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, you know, it's an unusual workspace. You know, rules right. don't apply there. There's no. HR department. So. <laughs> so as a Power Girl fan, if you were to, if someone were to come to you and say, all right, I, I like Power Girl, but I want to read her done appropriately, you know, yeah. written, where would you point them? I probably would start them off with that four issue miniseries from 1988. Okay. Uh, because it's, I mean, it's sort of short, it's self-contained, it, but it also, I mean, she's got friends, she's got friends that she cares about, she's got her powers, uh, she has foes that she has to fight. But there's a lot in there about – she actually starts to take uh, karate lessons, hmm. um, okay. and she talks about how she doesn't need the karate lessons, but but her karate instructor basically tells her about how this is sort of to help her sort of develop interior strength as opposed – you know, in juxtaposition to the exterior strength that she already has. And that makes her better at sort of superheroing once she sort of internalizes some of those lessons that she's learning from karate. Um, then we, wow. You know, and then we also get this whole thing, I mean, where she owns her own business and, you know, I mean, so it's, she's strong and empowered and she cares about people and she's still trying to learn and better herself. So I think that four issue miniseries is a great place to start Power Girl. Hats off to Paul Copperberg. Well done, yeah. sir. Yes. And I, I haven't reread this in many, many years. I mean, it's oof, almost, God, it's almost 20 years old. Holy moly. <laughs> the uh, Power Girl series by Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, mm. and Justin Gray. Mm. My memory was it was good. Um, yeah. I can't promise you it holds up from that perspective through that lens, but uh, I, I seem to recall enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, yeah, same. It's been a very long time since I've read it too, but uh, yes, I seem to recall that one was pretty darn good. So, and then there was like, what is it? Wonder Woman 600 where Wonder Woman and Power Girl talk about like what it means to own a cat. It's been oh, a while really? since I've read oh, that. Oh, wow. Too. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read yeah, that. I, yeah. It's a backup, I think. So it's it's real short. It's like a five-page story. So I haven't read it in forever and a day. But as I recall, it was fun. That's nice. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I think, I think it was Amanda Palmer. So since we're talking about Power Girl, here's something that's kind of fun to talk about. John Coos, one of our listeners, asked me, how do people pronounce Kara's name? Do they pronounce it Kara or Carl? And he suggested I reach out to Jerry Conway and Paul Levitz, which is a great idea. So I did. I reached out to him on Twitter. I said, hey, guys, you know, do you pronounce, as the creators and the early writers of Power Girl and All-Star Comics uh, and, and the Power Girl miniseries, how do you pronounce it, Kara Kara? So here's what we got. So uh, forgive me as I scroll. I know it's exciting to listen to that. <laughs> so we heard from Paul Kupperberg, who says he always pronounced it Kara. So feelings on that? Uh, well, uh, I went to college with a person named Kara, so she'll be happy to hear that uh, Paul Kupperberg, uh calls her Kara, but I'd always heard it was Kara. I'm glad to hear that uh, it's the other. So. 
<laughs> and Jerry Conway also said Kara. So, okay. Which I've been wrong all these years. Which blows my mind because I've always think Kara uh, until the Supergirl TV series came around and they started saying Kara. And I'm like, oh, maybe one, you know, or, or maybe one should be one, one should be the other just to give some sort mm-hmm. of difference. I'm not sure. So I, I was not, I, I've always said Kara. I probably will continue to say Kara just because I'm mm. stupid and I can't remember how to pronounce <laughs> things correctly as I've proven through the last six years of this podcast. So I'll tell a real quick story. So my wife and I, uh, when my when she was pregnant uh, for my daughter, we were going back and forth about names. And I decided I was going to try and slip in a superhero name on our daughter. So I'm like, oh, honey, we should name her Kara or Kara, I guess, at that point. Uh, I was going for Kara. And uh, unfortunately, thinking that I could slip through without her realizing it was a superhero name, she didn't realize it was a superhero name, but she completely vetoed it anyway for these other unrelated reasons. I'm like, darn it, I got foiled again. I tried. Oh, well. So uh, the, Lost the, that one. Yep. So, <laughs> well, you hear it here, folks. Uh, Paul Kepperberg and Jerry Conway say Kara. So, put that in your toolkit, folks, and uh, remember <laughs> that information. And because I won't. I, I again, you'll be you'll be putting this in the comments till the end of time that I said it wrong. So, and, and at the end of the day, we want to like Power Girl. I mean, this. Yes. She is just an older Supergirl. I mean, that's yes. It, and we all love Supergirl, so we want to see exactly. some of that same spark in Power Girl. And I hope we all get to you know in in, in the appropriate measure. I don't, I'm trying to think if she's even appearing in any comics right now. I'm not even sure. I don't, I read some DC comics, but I don't read a ton. I know they, they, they're trying to work towards a JSA series again. So hopefully we'll see some of her there. Yes. Yes. I hope so too. Because like I said, I love her. I mean, I've got a Power Girl print here in my office that I'm, I'm looking at right now. And I like to see uh, at least occasionally happy Power Girl. So. Yeah, that's very fair. That is very fair. Well, I, I really appreciate you sharing all that. That was fascinating. And again, you bringing just incredible insight that yeah, I'm sure not going to get to on my own. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you bringing that and sharing it with all of us. Well, thank you, Shag. I mean, you know, I love being here. And hey, anytime I get to talk about Power Girl and the boob window, it's, it's a good day. So. <laughs> You know, I have that same rule. <laughs> so, all right, Jenny, I need to ask a favor. Would you okay. mind hanging out here at the London Embassy for a little bit uh, just to make sure the cat doesn't get kidnapped and to make sure that uh, Power Girl doesn't go anywhere near any diet soda? Okay. All right. I'm on it. All right. Here, kitty, kitty. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And don't worry, Jenny. We will bring you back at the end of the show. Folks, while Jenny's taking care of that for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. All right, folks, just a reminder, the Blue and Gold miniseries by Dan Jurgens is still on the stands featuring Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, as well as the Human Target miniseries by Tom King. Both lots and lots of JLI goodness. Be sure you are picking those up and support the current JLI books on the shelves. Now, something cool that came out just recently, Kevin McGuire... He posted on social media something to celebrate the 35th anniversary of the JLI, at least the, the release of the first issue. He postulated the idea, what would the JLI members look like if 35 years had passed in real time, meaning they were 35 years older than they were than JLI number one. It's a great image. You can find it on social media uh, from Kevin McGuire, or we reshared it over on Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. So definitely check that out. It's an absolute hoot. Now, uh, you may have also noticed that we've released a new Justice League International Bwahaha podcast promo recently. It's been six years since the last trailer, and now that we're covering Justice League Europe, it really needed an update. 
Now, this new trailer includes actual European voices saying some of the character names, too. In fact, the trailer, <laughs> the trailer has more Europeans than the actual Justice League Europe team. Now, you can find it right here on the JLI podcast feed right before this show. And if you've got a podcast of your own, I'd be honored if you consider playing the promo on your show. Now, I know there are some folks who skip this part of the show, and shame on them for doing that, really. So, you folks who are still listening, I'm going to reward your dedication with some personal and podcast-related news. I've been doing the JLI podcast for six years now, and I've got another two years worth of issues left to cover. Now, I'm sort of, you know, seeing the end in sight. I'm starting to think, what am I going to do once the JLI podcast is over? I still plan to produce a monthly show, but what should it be about? Well, after many, many months of consideration, I've decided that I uh, sure as hell will not be tackling another topic that takes me eight years to complete. (laughs) I absolutely love the JLI podcast, but come on, eight years talking about the same thing can be a challenge. There's other stuff I want to talk about. So instead, for my new show, I'm going to be covering a variety of geeky topics that'll change from episode to episode. So anything's really is fair game, but I'll probably focus mostly on science fiction, comics, pop culture, discussions about being a geek in the real world. The goal is to produce a show covering topics that I love, things that I'm passionate about, stuff that brings me joy. So my new podcast is called Once Upon a Geek, and the first episode will be coming out in April. For the next two years, the release schedule for Once Upon a Geek will be periodic, basically when I can squeeze it in. Then, once the JLI podcast is finished in two more years, Once Upon a Geek will become my regular monthly show. Now, just to give you an idea on topics that I'm already planning to cover, uh, the premiere episode will be a discussion with my real-life brother and real-life sister talking about what it was like growing up geeky in the 1970s and 1980s. Now, after that, I'll be doing a three-part mini series of episodes doing a deep dive into that beloved 1980 sci-fi franchise V. Yes, the alien lizard visitors who came to Earth to steal our water. Uh, We're going to talk about the TV miniseries, the weekly TV series, the comic books, the novels, the merchandise, the music, the whole fan experience. I'm really looking forward to it. Then further episodes beyond that are going to cover Doctor Who, the Blue Devil comic book series, Blake 7, Geek Parenting, my experiences managing a comic book store in the 1990s, and much more. Now, I'd love to do episodes on pretty much everything I love, you know, like Star Trek and Star Wars and Daredevil comics and role-playing games and Back to the Future and, and all the nostalgia-fueled ideas just keep going on and on and on. Now, listen carefully during the next podcast promo break right after this listener feedback, and you'll hear the trailer for Once Upon a Geek coming in April, a proud new part of the Firewater Podcast Network. All right, so let's get back to Justice League International, folks. So get out on the social media, use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast, tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Now, for this feedback, we're just going to be pulling comments from our website, email, social media, things like that. Just pulling bits and pieces. Uh, We're going to be covering the most recent episode featuring Justice League America number 45 with my guest Matthew Cody and Justice League Europe number 21 with Jeff Pollier. So first up is Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does shows such as the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, I really like this date with density much better than issue number 28. Basically, even with his flaws, Guy is much less of a jerk and Ice is really in control. And that's the reason I can appreciate the cover's gorgeousness much better, even when the consent question remains unanswered. The Oberon stuff? Powerful. And I'm really glad Hughes was around to convey those scenes. Uh, Adam Hughes and Kevin McGuire are the masters of Maxwell Lord and Oberon as far as I see it. 
Then regarding Just League Europe, Max says, reviewing the Just League Europe cover, this is conceptually so good. Not 100% sold on the character work. I feel Rogers was still not there long enough to get the characters, but the layout and the design are fantastic. Oh, awesome, Gus. Thanks so much for your feedback, buddy. Then we heard from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy and the Two Dangers for Girl blog. Martin says, I've only heard of Peggy Fleming due to the Peanuts cartoon. Lord, I hate Woodstock. All right, hold on a minute. Uh, Martin, I'm going to have to seriously re-examine whether you can be on my Christmas card list anymore or not. Woodstock? You're hating on Woodstock? Let me tell you. When I was a kid growing up, you know, every kid has their teddy bear or security blanket type thing. Mine was a Woodstock stuffed animal. So, Martin, you know, I'm sorry. that Our friendship has come a good, what, decade now? I, I don't know, man. I just may have to re-examine our whole relationship. <clears> hmm. <throat> All right, well, anyway, Martin goes on to say, I really disliked the way that Oberon left the JLA book. He was such a great friend to everyone and just slunked off. I thought the League was supposed to be some kind of family, but they're too busy being stupid to notice Oberon leaving. Then again, maybe he loved everyone so much that he couldn't face an emotional farewell, so was happy to let the daft fight serve as a distraction. Uh, you know, Martin, I'm not sure. You ask a good question there. I like to think that it's a way for the book to show that people will come and go in our lives, and yet the everyday just keeps going forward, uh, even when people are gone. Uh, then Martin goes on to talk about the fog in Just League Europe. He says, The pea super, when Power Girl and Captain Adam were crossing the road, was ridiculous. We've not had that kind of thing since the 50s. The Clean Air Act came out in 1962. Uh, you know, Martin, for us over here in the States... That's something we would never know. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. And then he says, uh, that pic of Karen in a bikini wouldn't have made page three of a tabloid back then. It was topless models only. Yeah, you know, I can only imagine that uh, being the code-approved comic, they kind of had to work with what they could. I didn't find this Justice League Europe issue boring. I'd rather have interesting character action over another issue of The Extremists. Uh, I totally agree with you on that, Martin. And then Martin calls us out saying we made a mistake. We had said uh, that Neil Adams and Jim Aparo were building on the work of Marshall Rogers when it was, in fact, the other way around, uh, that Marshall Rogers was building on their work. So, yeah, I apologize for that mistake. Uh, a couple of people, Jeff happened to say a couple of things. That's not Jeff's fault. It was actually, uh, he was riffing off of my notes. Uh, so that is entirely my fault. I just screwed up when I was prepping for the episode. So uh, sorry about that, folks. Did not mean to disrespect Marshall Rogers' impact or that of Neil Adams, Jim Aparo. All right, next is Chris Franklin from our Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast, Starman Chronicles, and much more. Chris says, I'd forgotten about the giant-headed Guy Gardner character. I think they were rejecting some Disney on Ice in there, too. That show, which is still going, spun off a Disney segment that used to be included in the Ice Capades from the 1950s through the early 1970s, I believe. Look at that. Fascinating. Then Chris says, I love Marshall Rogers, and folks who listen to Nightcast know that. He's one of my absolute favorite Batman artists. He's got the best capage ever, but I don't really care a lot for his art during this period. He was going through a very open phase with his art, relying on lots of line work instead of spotting blacks, and his formerly dynamic work looked rather stiff. Now, the open look works here for Just League Europe, but the stiffness adds to the less-than-exciting nature of the issue. Maybe his heart just wasn't in these assignments, but he did some work on G.I. Joe around this time, too, and that was also not his best work. His work in the Beef Eater story last issue seemed more dynamic and a bit of a bridge between the classic Marshall and this version. Not long after this issue, I was lucky enough to meet him at a very small comic convention near me, and I got to geek out on him over his Batman work. He signed every Batman book he ever worked on for me. Thankfully, he got to come back to Batman and show his greatness again in the early 2000s. That's awesome. I'm so glad you got a chance to have that experience. 
Then Matthew Cody from the Superman Radio Revisited podcast and our guest last episode says, I've seen advertisements that Disney on Ice is coming to my city in March. Maybe I'm still in the afterglow of podcasting with Shag about JLA number 45, but I think it'd be fun to take my family. <laughs> awesome, Matthew. I hope you did. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast and the Batgirl Huntress podcast. Tim says, wow, love this episode, Shag. Both Matt and Jeff were great guests, but oh my gosh, Jeff's poem. Awe-inspiring work, sir. <laughs> then Tim says, uh, this story is one of my favorites of the entire JLI era. It's hilarious. Ice shows her quiet strength. Guy gets a bit of a comeuppance, and the final scene being off-panel is fabulous. Tim goes on to say, I had the pleasure of meeting artist Russell Braun at a 2021 Baltimore Comic-Con, and he gave the usual, wow, I haven't seen this in ages reaction. I expected when I asked him to sign this issue. This is one of his first jobs for DC, and we had a great time talking about it. That was fun. Then uh, regarding Justice League Europe, Tim says, I've been reading Captain Adam's series on DC Universe Infinite along with this podcast, which has been great since I've never read it before, and I'm loving it. When it comes to love interest, I'll say this now, Captain Adam's got game. There's, <laughs> there's Catherine Colbert in Justice League Europe, and in his own series, there's Nightshade from Suicide Squad, the femme fatale plastique, and a civilian woman who was born the same time as Cap, but is now older than him because of his 20-year time jump. They're all amazing, although plastique is a bit scary. I guess flying around covered in silver must appeal to the ladies. Then he goes on to say, since Blue Jay is an analog to Yellow Jacket and Hank Pym, he could have a partner slash love interest like Janet Van Dyne the Wasp. But we haven't seen one yet, and it would have to be in flashbacks. And then he says, uh, any reason Blue Jay's partner has to be a woman. You know, bird names work pretty well for any gender. Cardinal, Sparrow, Starling, Robin. Oh, wait, uh, is that one taken? <laughs> Thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate it. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Then Liz says, Ice dresses kind of like someone's grandmother. I don't really see the attractiveness of this. She looks like somebody's grandmother getting ready to go watch their grandchild get a science award or graduate from high school. Whoa, 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 whoa. There, Liz. Hold on a moment. So I, I get what you're saying with like sort of the doily, lacy thing on top, but really look at that. So first of all, the outfit is somewhat form-fitting. It's not like real loose and flowing like a grandmother's. It, it fits her nicely. Uh, the bottom half, I mean, it's a short skirt. You know, it's a short black, you know, not, not quite a mini skirt, but it's a short black skirt. I'm just saying she's pulling off kind of like the sexy professional look like some people manage to do in their office. It's it's still tasteful. It's covering all the right parts, but damn, it still looks good. So that's where I'm going at with ice. Uh, Liz continues and says, kind of disappointed in Blue Beetle. Attacking Guy is one thing, but ruining that date is kind of a jerk move. There will be many other times to insult him or demean him. Just ruining the man's date, though? Won't say what I'd call this, but it's just bad form. Killua going along with it is sad, too. I mean, it's funny. It's just that they could have done it at a different time. Yeah, I mean, it really, really was mean-spirited, Liz. You're, you're not wrong there. It really, in a lot of ways, it was kind of inappropriate. And the fact that Kilowog and Fire went along with it, you know, at the end of the day, it's a it's a sitcom comic book, and that's why it happened. But uh, yeah, in real life, it would have been a total jerk move. Then we heard from Jason Lady, the author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels, Monster Problems and Super Problems. Jason says, I forgot that Oberon left the team in this issue. I think he does come back in breakdowns, but it's weird to reflect on as of this issue, the only Justice League members left from number one are Jean, Beetle, and Guy. This was truly a team that went through a lot of upheaval. Then Jason goes on to say one of Marshall Rogers' overlooked accomplishments is the new look for Deadshot. Before that, Deadshot had run around in a top hat and a tuxedo. Seriously. Gave the character a really, really cool redesign whose basic aesthetics last to this day. 
I'm pretty sure Deadshot wouldn't even be what he is today without Engelhart and Rogers giving him a makeover. Oh, Jason, that is absolutely true. I mean, he gave him the makeover, and that just propelled him into a lot of attention in the 80s, which eventually led to the Suicide Squad. So yeah, without a doubt. Then we heard from Mike Dynas from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, Pacific Canadian diplomatic office here. The embassy slash consulate is frozen for the winter, so we are operating out of a hipster craft brewery logging tugboat. <laughs> oh, Mike. Uh, then he goes on to say, I really enjoyed this episode as the guests were fantastic. But to be honest, the guests are always fantastic, and listening is such a joy every month. Aw, Mike, you know exactly what to say. You're so kind. Uh, regarding Just Like America, he says, this talk about an irredeemable guy who was loved by a nice woman despite all his flaws sounded similar to a certain host we know <laughs> yes my wife is extremely tolerant and i'm far far too lucky uh then mike goes on to say with oberon leaving this really feels like the startup breakdowns and as much as i love the bwahaha era for the slice of life issues showing guy being such a jerk even though he claims he's trying to be better for ice without showing any benefits he brings to the jli makes you wonder why he's on the team or even why the team would even want guy i mean how many green lanterns for sector 2814 are there Surely they could get somebody else. Uh, yeah, Mike, I mean, that, that question could be posed all the way back from issue number one. I mean, he's nothing but a jerk, but he brings a certain amount of power. He's certainly got a certain amount of loyalty. And again, it's a sitcom, so you got to have the kind of the antagonist. But boy, yeah, in real life, he'd be out of there. Then Mike says, with all this talk about art, I'm curious what everyone else thinks if in an alternate world, Kevin McGuire or Adam Hughes or Bart Sears were able to stay on their books the entire time. Do you think the series would have lasted longer? Been more influential? The general vibe I've been getting from this series is that we all love McGuire, Hughes, and Sears, even Ty Templeton's issues. But whenever there's a fill-in artist, no matter how much we may like the story, it's just not regarded as one of the better issues of the series. Isn't that a saying? Great art can save a bad story, but not vice versa? Uh, you know, Mike, it's hard to say. Like, I love every issue for its own unique reasons, but you make a good point. I mean, McGuire, Sears, Hughes, Templeton, those are regarded as the best issues, without a doubt. So, eh, I don't know whether the art is the main highlight of the issue, but there's certainly some correlation between the fact that those artists on those issues, those do tend to be the more iconic issues. They were heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. They do the Symbol Pending Power Girl blog. Uh, Simple Penning says, I really enjoyed this one, though I often mention preferring the character beats over the action. It's also a fairly Kara or Kara centric story, with her for once being helpful in trying to set up Captain Adam and Catherine Colbert. One thing that really stands out weird to me is Crimson Fox's assistant calling her Mum. It reads to me as if there's meant to be a localized take on Yes, Ma'am, but I can assure you that we don't really use anything like that. Uh, yeah, Symbol Penning. I mean, we talked a little bit about that today on just how there seems to be a lot of British slang trying to be used here in the stories, and it's not really working. It's a little over the top, it's a little too stereotypical, uh, or even a little far beyond what's realistic. Then Sybil Penning says, Is there any real-world reason why the JLE was moved to London? It just seems especially weird as they spend much of their time moving the Paris-based characters from Paris to the UK. Um, you know, Simple Penning, the only thing I can imagine in that case is it, it seems like, based on the recent issues, uh, the authors, whether it's the plotter or the scripter, seem to have a real passion for British television. And that, that I mean, obviously there was the Faulty Tower stuff. And, and now if you l listen to this ish episode, there's a lot of, uh, again, the accents that come in. I, I get the sense there's probably a lot of just British fandom going on that drove this change. 
Then we heard from Siskoid from the Canadian Embassy. He's part of the Firewater Podcast Network, of course. He does shows such as Zero Hour Strikes, Who's Editing, and more. Siskoid says, I'm glad the JLE is moving to London, if only so the host and his guests can stop mangling the French language. <laughs> Thank you for that direct dig at me, Siskoid. I appreciate it. Then he says, although I also want to say that when they made the move, I remember being disappointed. London's just another Anglo-centric city, well-exploited in Anglo-centric media. It solves some problems for the creative team and the characters, but why not keep moving around continental Europe? Rome, Madrid, Prague, Brussels. Uh, there's a missed opportunity there. Uh, Cisco, I completely agree with you. I mentioned it in the episode, too. You know, Paris wasn't even fully explored. I mean, there were so many opportunities they didn't take. And having the, you know, stranger in a strange land aspect does work, I think, better. So I, I, I'm not, like, angry they're in England, but it, I'm disappointed. I, I wish they could have been in a different European country. I think there would have been uh, a lot more opportunity just for more interesting storytelling. Then finally, we heard from uh, Jody Yurden. Says, Just League America number 45, my all-time favorite single issue. I was fortunate enough to get my childhood copy signed by J.M.D. Mateus a few years back. Ah, that's awesome, Jody. Congratulations. All right, folks, now this is the part of the show where we thank everybody who shared the show on their social media timeline, whether it be Facebook or Twitter. Now, it's a long list of names, but these folks help to support and promote the show. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals. So here's everyone who helped promote the last episode by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. You can be on this list, folks. All you got to do, again, on Facebook, hit share. On Twitter, hit retweet. So our thanks go out to Al Girding, Andre TFG, B. Bali, Between the Pages Blog, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Clinton Robison and his Days of High Adventure podcast and Fan Films Fridays podcast, Damian Drywood Whiter, Derek William Crabb, Dr. Jennifer Swartz Levine, Geek to Me Radio, Glenn Natu Heal. Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, Jeff Pollier, Joe Tonello, John Coos, John Mintz, Justin Steiner, Lizanne Oswald, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthew Cody and his Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Max Romero, Max Traver, Michael Kramer, Mick Jamison, Mike Dinas, Olavo Lima, Paul Kean, Podcastia, Pragmatic Gollum, Rob Kelly and his For All Mankind Super Friends Podcast, Mountain Comics, and Treasury Comics, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Symbol Pending, Tim Price and his Outcasters and Batman and the Outsiders Podcast, Trent Lewis, Turbo Comics, Zeb Oswald, and Zek Cap Boots. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we built together is absolutely wonderful. I adore all of you. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably the fault of Matthew Cody or Jeff Pollier. Now, let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. And please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Visit our website at firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post there. Also on Facebook, you can find us as Justice League International Blahaha Podcast, or on Twitter at JLI Podcast. And of course, you can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Matthew Cody and Jeff Polier for appearing on the most recent episode of the show. And thank you to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and I'm going to play the new trailer for Once Upon a Geek. And when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Andy and Jenny together in the same episode. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. 
While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI Teleporter has brought both Andy and Jenny together for us. Now, Andy, first off, thank you so much for being here. It's been a long time since we chatted. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I'm so glad to have a General Glory fan on the show. Uh, it, it really meant a lot to have you here, buddy. So why don't you tell the people at home where they can find you on the interwebs? They can't. I no longer exist on the internet. Uh, <laughs> Andy is off the grid, people. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm off social media, and I just sort of exist as a regular human now existing in meat space so wow okay i i did not know that i thought andy was pulling a prank okay so (laughs) one of the most online people ever to exist and i I no longer exist online so he is a ghost of his former self folks but you can still (laughs) listen to andy's appearances he's been on several episodes of the fire and water podcast network just search for his name in the box and you will find some episodes that you can waste your time listening to andy ramble about shadows of the empire or secret origins any other number of things so (laughs) that many Eighty nine, uh, yeah. Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Uh, Got you covered. Good yeah. stuff. Good stuff. Well, Andy, again, thanks so much for being here, buddy. It's been a real blast catching up. Thank you for having me. Anytime, especially bring back hero points. Please bring back hero points. Please do hero points now. Please, I'm begging you. Please do more hero points. The show still exists. It's called Let's Roll now. It's still going. Siskoid puts out tons of episodes. I, I know it's called Let's Roll, but like, listen, li- see, nothing against the Let's Roll, but hero points was such like it it's just a classic series it's just it was classic and now it's good you're saying it's like x-files after david Duchovny left yeah i mean <laughs> it's okay cisco doesn't listen to the show anyway he's not going to hear any of this don't right. worry well he's like cisco it's not the uh I, I i would take it as a uh, compliment if someone called me like the robert patrick of anything but yeah <laughs> well again andy thank you so much thanks for having me and it's seriously anytime now, Jenny, I really appreciate you coming back and being on our show and wasting your time again. Thank you so very much. Sooner or later, you're going to realize you have better things to do with your life. So <laughs> if you would, would you please tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the internet? Well, thank you, Shag. This has been wonderful. And I, I definitely don't have better things to do with my life than coming on, on this show. So I'm <laughs> thrilled to be back. I can be found on Twitter at Jennifer Swartz 2 I'm on Facebook. My last, my name is Jennifer Swartz Levine or or if you want to send me an email, look at the Lake Erie College website, lec.edu, in the directory. And I'm the only one with the last name Sports Levine there. So you'll find me there. <laughs> uh, and then also on Facebook, there is a page called Continual Con, which does a lot of wonderful panels on all sorts of things, on comics, on movies, on romance novels. And uh, was recently on an episode on Batgirl. So if you go Woo-hoo. to the Conti- Continual Con page on Facebook, and it'll be showing up there shortly. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jenny, for being here. I really, really appreciate it. And I did slip a teaser in earlier, folks, that uh, this will not be the last time you hear someone from the Sports Levine family on this podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, folks. Well, that is going to do it for this episode. Now, come back next time when we take a sidestep over to Justice League International Special Number 2, all about the Huntress. And we'll have another guest to help me cover the issue. Who will it be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I was Andy. And I'm Jenny. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make, make something, something of it? it?